That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Is Jerry Jones... A good NFL owner or a bad NFL owner? I think people would probably agree that he's in the way of the Dallas Cowboys and the success they may or may not have. Jerry Jones, Cowboys owner, will be required to take a paternity test as part of a legal with a 27-year-old woman who says that the billionaire is her biological father. There was an appeal in court today. A Texas judge ruled that uh, the paternity case brought by Alexandra Davis will move forward. And I kind of am just thinking about the peripheral lives of these billionaire owners. Messy. Messy as a person. Messy as an owner. Is that a mantra that we can use? Focused as a person. Focused as an owner. Part of the problem with billionaires owning sports teams is that some of these billionaires did not build their fortune some of them inherit fortune see i have much respect for a guy like steve ballmer in the clippers because you know he played a role in fostering his own wealth made some smart decisions proved that he could lead he could do some things so if you're a clippers fan you probably go ah you know this guy probably knows what he's talking about or at least has some basic leadership skills Mark Cuban, another great example, built his entrepreneurial. To some extent, you could, uh, you could respect what Paul Allen did with the Trailblazers in building his wealth, $20 billion, towards the end of his life, um, in that, you know, he did something to create that wealth. But what do we do with owners and primarily majority owners of teams that inherit their wealth and then walk around like they built it? You know, they're born on second or third base. Jerry Jones um, is uh, in court. He is uh, challenging the constitutionality of the Texas law that compels him to uh, partake in genetic testing. And if he is uh, that adamant at fighting it, you pretty much know you don't have to take the test. But he is being sued by a 27-year-old woman who says, you're my father. We have a great show today. We're going to talk about leadership in general. Teresa Gold. The commissioner of the Pac-12 will take the job tomorrow. It'll be her first official day on the job. She spoke in a news conference earlier today. I participated in that, asked a question. Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president, was alongside. I didn't love the format of this, uh, you know, interview. It's hard to look human when you're doing a Zoom interview at any time. There is sort of a, uh, I guess, a uh, propensity to look like a wax figure. You've been on a Zoom call. I've been on a Zoom call. Uh, you know, nobody's blinking. Uh, but Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president, Teresa Gold, the new commissioner of the Pac-12, 
effective tomorrow or effective midnight tonight, uh, answered some questions, and then Yogi Roth, the Pac-12 Network, uh, sort of teed up the event and then stepped aside. And there are a few nuggets I want to talk about, but I just think in general, with those news conferences, you have a chance to either look really good in those news conferences or really bad. And I think that the the bigger risk is that you look bad. And so I, I think Gould did okay. I didn't love that she deferred a little bit too much to Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president. But part of that is, you know, you're you're appearing alongside your boss in a Zoom call, and you have just been handed the keys to the empire. And so I think there was kind of a temptation there maybe for Gold to kind of defer a little bit to Kirk Schultz as, you know, she's working for two people. She's working for Kirk Schultz at Washington State and Giotti Murthy, the president at Oregon State. But uh, Teresa Gold spoke uh, for about uh, 30, 35 minutes along with Kirk Schultz. They answered some questions. She'll be joining us at 4 o'clock for an exclusive one-on-one interview, and we'll go deeper. And I, I think I'm more interested in just sort of hearing the tone of what she has to say, asking her uh, questions that Oregon State and Washington State fans really want to know. You know, is this a rebuild? Is this a, hey, let's wait and see? How much of the $255 million war chest is going to be used to kind of fund the two universities? How much of it will potentially be used to maybe put the conference back together again? Are they going to use that money to kind of fund themselves for five, six, seven years? Or are they going to use that money to go out and buy San Diego State, Boise State, Fresno State, and try to create uh, what would be probably from outside in look like the best group of five conference that ever lived? So we'll see what happens with the Pac-12, but we'll hear from Teresa Gold coming up at 4 o'clock. I did, I am going to play a couple of cuts here from that news conference. And again, we're talking about leadership, coaching leadership, ownership, commissioner leadership on today's show. And I think leadership off, awfully underrated as it pertains to sports and success. When we look at the correlation of success in sports, success in life, I do find it interesting that some of the same billionaires who own teams, who inherited said teams, just seem to struggle more than others. And I wonder if we can draw those kinds of distinctions with owners like Jerry Jones, Mark Cuban, others who built the, you know, may may or may not have built their wealth, but certainly find themselves in a position where they're running a team. Uh, from today's news conference, Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president, alongside Teresa Gold, the new conference commissioner, she said uh, that uh, a couple things that jumped out at me. Number one, she was asked uh, about the Big Ten and the SEC. Great question about the Big Ten and the SEC running away with things. They're joining forces. I told you they're up to no good. Here's Teresa Gold responding to a question about whether she's concerned about that. I'm not going to comment. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to comment on what may or may not be happening in, in the Big Ten and the SEC. In terms of concerns, I mean, at this point, uh, all of the A5 commissioners, including me, are very engaged with Charlie Baker as the leadership of the NCAA to talk through the concerns at the A5 level and what that means in terms of the NCAA and the future governance, right? I know Charlie has been working on, and it's been very public, this Project Division One, and what that means. And all I can say is, is I feel comfortable right now that the collaboration between Charlie and the A5 commissioners is is strong. 
and that we're attacking concerns head on um, and that I'm optimistic that the outcome will be a positive one. All right. So along with everybody else not named the Big Ten and the SEC, again, leadership being the primary focus here, along with all those other leaders, Teresa Gold expressing some concern, but also some confidence that the NCAA and Charlie Baker and the group will do what's right for the group. I don't know that I trust that. I don't know that I trust the – I know that I don't trust the Big Ten and the SEC further than I can throw them. They're in it for the Big Ten and the SEC. And, you know, anybody who's on the outside of that group looking in knows that those entities are going to do what's best for themselves. She went on to talk about automatic qualifiers, earning it on the field instead of earning it uh, by an automatic uh, entry into the playoff. Uh, Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president, talked about a magical season that, you know, if, if Washington State or Oregon State have a magical season where they win a bunch of games and he doesn't want to have to go in, walk into the Washington State locker room, talk to the coaching staff and talk to players and say, hey, um, guess what? You had a great year. You won 10, 11 games. You should be in the playoff. But guess what? You got edged out because the uh, you know everybody not named the Big Ten and the SEC doesn't have a bunch of automatic berths into the playoff. Um, I thought that was an interesting distinction as well. Teresa Gold, the new Pac-12 commissioner, talked about the Pac-12 networks. What's going to happen with the Pac-12 networks? We'll dive deeper on it uh, when she joins us at 4 o'clock. But here's what she said during the Zoom call. So the, the commitment that's been made so far and the decision that's been made by our board is to continue to operate the studio and the facility that we have uh, in Bishop Ranch and in San Ramon for at least next year for the 2024-2025 academic year. You know, we think that's a really invaluable asset. You know, it's state-of-the-art technology in that facility, and there will be a lot of content that needs to be created and production services that we need to support Oregon State and Washington State. They have you know, programs that need to be showcased and events that we want to support to tell the great stories of our student athletes on those two campuses. So we're going to continue to operate that facility, at least for next year, while concurrently thinking about it as a valuable and unique asset moving forward. So as we think about the long-term plan, the studio, the facility, the technology in the facility, the talent that we have in that organization, and obviously the networks as part of that is going to be part of the discussion that we have in terms of long-term, what does it look like? What are the differentiators for us that we can leverage as we think about the future for Oregon State and Washington State? But next year it will be um, continuing to operate and we'll be supporting both programs with live events and content. I want to ask her coming up what that looks like specifically. What does she mean as it pertains to the Pac-12 network? Because that could be a really cool thing if Oregon State and Washington State really want to utilize it in a innovative and bold and forward-thinking way. It also could become an albatross around your neck if it becomes a money pit or it becomes a lot of obligations um, for your various members. Like, you know, the programs, the athletic department programs need to be free to go out and produce and be who they are and be great and be all they can be. They don't need to be held back by the commitments and obligations that the network could potentially put on them. And specifically, if uh, there is a 
broadcast element to the Pac-12 network. Not sure if that's going to be a thing or not. Is this just going to be like, hey, we're going to create content for social media, create content for the web, create different kinds of content, or are they really interested in trying to do something bold, forward thinking outside the box like the Mariners are doing in spring training? Um, Just yesterday, the Mariners put a live feed from their spring training ballpark on the web for Mariners fans to check out, and they synced it with the radio broadcast in Seattle. And so you have this really different, like, I don't know if it works for the regular season, not as good as a TV broadcast, but way better than nothing kind of broadcast that the Mariners put together that some Mariners fans are like, hey, this is better than what you get on Root Sports. Like, you know, this this thing has potential. Like, could the Pac-12 do something forward-thinking like that with its sports teams? I don't know. Meantime, the conference releasing its football schedule for Oregon State and Washington State next season, along with a uh, asterisk and uh, a comment in with the con- with the schedules that were released, indicating that it's there's a potential for the Mountain West Conference games that will be on Fox and CBS to move as they are selected by TV partners into Friday night windows. So we'll keep an eye on that moving forward and what that means. But the schedules are starting to really take uh, you know concrete shape. There will be six-day and 12-day windows in all conferences across the country. Pac-12 will have them. Big 10 will have them. Big 12 and ACC, Big 10, SEC. Everybody has six-day and 12-day windows in their contracts, I'm told. And so you'll continue to see that stuff. I still think we're going to see the teams in the Pacific time zone, including Arizona, Arizona State, which remain on Pacific time until November. I think you're going to see those teams playing some late games because they're not going to ask the teams in the Midwest and in the South and in the eastern part of the country to play uh, 7.30 or 7 o'clock Pacific time games. So I think UCLA, USC, Oregon, Washington, Oregon State, uh, Washington State, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah are all going to see games still in those late windows. Um, so that'll be a thing moving forward as well. But when I, as I talk about leadership, you know, what were your impressions today if you heard Teresa Gold? And what will it be your impressions at 4 o'clock when you listen to her in a more in-depth one-on-one interview? I want to hear from you later in the show, not now, but let's sort of evaluate her leadership as I am talking about leadership in the NFL, leadership in Major League Baseball, in the NBA, whether it's coaching, ownership, general manager, you've got to have that congruency of vision. You have to have vision at all. You have to be a bit of a fighter, especially if you're somebody uh, like like uh, Teresa Gold. You know, it's uh, it, it's you know an, an often pointed out uh, fact that, that teams with their back against the wall will play harder. You know, facing elimination, they will play harder. You read The Art of War with Sun Tzu, the famous uh, Chinese, legendary Chinese general, says that that army that is facing uh, death with its back against the wall will fight three times as hard. Um, You know, we've seen that play out in the real world. Will it play out with the Pac-12 teams that are fighting for their existence and fighting for traction in college football? Great show for you today. We'll talk to Greg Woods of the Spokesman Review about Washington State coming up. We'll get his take on Washington State's football schedule, Washington State basketball team. Kyle Smith and the Cougars have been one of the best stories 
You talk about leadership, getting great coaching, great leadership in Spokane. We'll talk about Dana Altman's final couple of weeks. Not uh, not the best performance by Oregon and Oregon State in a Civil War basketball game last night. Oregon getting the W, but man, I, I really am looking at the last couple of weeks of the season here with Dana Altman and thinking he'd better have some fun. Or maybe uh, maybe Dana Altman finally does decide to throw in the keys. We'll talk about that as well, plus a whole bunch more. Steven, you're in the seat. I'm talking leadership. Jerry Jones got to take a paternity test. Can we say his life outside of football is messy, his life inside of football is messy? Can we draw that correlation? I mean, it's, uh, that's a wild situation. I mean, for being that age and uh, having that happen to him, it's tough. It's also a bad look because – you think about on the field stuff and the Cowboys haven't been very good. They've been one of the more underachieving teams uh, in the NFL for the past, you know, 20 plus years or so, you know, since they won those Super Bowls with Aikman and Emmett and Irvin. So it, it does go to show like, you know, maybe you're kind of convinced me a little bit that ownership mattered a little more than I think it does. Uh, but no, man, that's just a terrible look. If you're a Cowboys fan, you can't be excited about that. And um Man, how do you get yourself in that situation? I just, I, just, I don't understand these type of uh, these type of situations where you know what you are uh, impregnating other women when uh, you you don't need to. It just it seems like it's a very easy thing not to <laughs> <Yeah>. do. <laughs> you're talking about this in very specific terms. Yes. The original lawsuit claimed that Jerry Jones pursued Cynthia Cynthia Davis while she was working for American Airlines. She was working in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, and then years later. It, the uh, settlement agreement called for Jerry Jones to pay Cynthia Davis, who is the uh, mother of of the uh, the woman who is Alexandra, who is seeking the paternity test, three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars, and for Alexandra to get monthly and annual funds from a trust fund until she was age twenty one, and then she would get lump sum payments at twenty four, twenty six, and twenty eight. Now, so it doesn't seem to be like. This doesn't seem to be a paternity issue. This seems to be a how much is she going to get issue, and is she looking for a settlement? And uh, it feels like Jerry Jones is just fighting this and fighting the constitutionality of the uh, paternity test to try to uh, potentially get her to go away. But uh, it is wild. And if you're a Cowboys fan, like I always say this, like you you got to examine sort of the actions and the activities, and you know you know who your owner is. You know who your general manager is. Your coach is going to show you over time who he or she is. And you got to look at these people and go, okay, is this thing, like, is the noise in that ecosystem moving in the right direction? Or is it noisy and potentially distracting? And for the Cowboys, I don't think there's any question. Greg Woods, spokesman review coming up. Teresa Gold, 4 o'clock, Pac-12 commissioner. Be here for it. Super excited to see what happens in the men's and women's Pac-12 basketball tournaments in Las Vegas. Our next guest is sitting on one of the best stories in college basketball, let alone the Pac-12 conference footprint. Greg Woods is with the Spokesman Review. He covers Washington State. The Cougars, 12-5 and in conference play, on the heels of Arizona, playing a big game tonight against USC. Greg Woods here to talk about it. What's the atmosphere like? You expecting a crowd tonight? Big time. I uh, I, I uh, tweeted this out this morning, but we got an email from the uh, uh, men's basketball SID with a few notes, just as more and more media come to these, <laughs> these games. And uh, one of them was like, you know, due to a 
uh, higher ticket demand, the media seating is moving. And I don't know when the last time the media seat, the media seating moved. Um, but that just goes to show you that there, that, you know, they are, uh, thinking there'll be some sort of crowd there tonight. I think the highest has been this year has been like 5,000 or so for Arizona and then, uh, Stanford the other, or last week. So yeah, should be good, uh, tonight. Kyle Smith was talking about the parking situation. Was, was there a parking snafu for people who were trying to get to the game? Was that seen as a deterrent? What was happening with that? Uh, I I don't know. You have to fill me in on that one. He was talking. I asked him about the crowd, and he said, "You know, last time we had a home game, we had a bunch of people complain they couldn't get into the parking garage." And he says, "Don't charge them. Just get them in there. I need them in the arena." And so, you know, the attendance in general has been kind of a topic of conversation, hasn't it? For sure, yeah. It, it it started off as like <laughs> some fans were like telling me that I should like call into question like the integrity of like the attendance numbers. So I'm like, dude, I don't. It's not my job. Like, 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 like the number is what it is. Um, but it does. I think like the bigger thing is that like you know they haven't been good since like '08. So that's like 16 years of like apathy to set in among the fans, which I think is. Uh, definitely there, and rightfully so. I mean, who wants to go to games where you know you're getting blown out every night? So I think like even within this, it, you know, this awesome season, it's been um, hard for you know the Cougs to kind of engender some uh, some fire among the fan base, um, just because I mean, you know, it's 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 hard to kind of get that to happen. But um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's going up. I think um, this will probably be this or Saturday when they play UCLA will probably be. Uh, the high attendance for the year, and then they got UW on uh, a week from today. So, yeah, it keeps going up. People are wondering, you know, why isn't there more numbers? It's not, but I think it's just like a um, – it just goes to show you just how hard it is, even within an awesome season like this, to get fans to really come down. And, I mean, obviously, I mean, I mean Pullman is, you know, an hour and a half away from Spokane, and then you're talking, you know, four, you know, four and a half, five hours from Seattle, which is where most of the, uh, you know, Wazoo alumni that, or that live in Washington live. So, um, yeah, it, it's hard to you know really get the numbers that they want, but it's it's going up, and I, I think they appreciate that for sure. They coming off of a big win over Arizona, drop a game to Arizona State, and and I, and I guess you could argue they maybe they were flat, maybe Arizona State was a little up for it. Um, what do you think happened in the Arizona State game? I mean, they're coming off of what was potentially the biggest win in program history. So I mean. They didn't get to bed until, I mean, we're talking like 2 or 3 in the morning that night because um, they went straight to Tempe that same night after the game. Um, so then, I mean, you got a day to recover, get some shots that later in the day, and then you're right back out of the next day. So, I mean, I think I think they were just gassed. I mean, they were playing heavy, heavy, heavy minutes that night. Um, and, and, and that would have been, I mean, but then you just add in like just the insane nature of that game. I mean, just the emotional toll that you kind of had to expand to win that one, I think kind of reared its head and I mean and then like Isaac Jones and uh, Kamani Wintu were under the weather neither uh, one of those guys were at shoot around that morning so I think they were just kind of taxed in the way that you would expect them to be after a huge win like that and and ASU I mean they're just I think it was kind of a bad matchup for for the Cougs in some ways because like those guys are just super athletic and they want to play like a one uh, like a lot of one-on-one ball which Wazoo is not really prepared or kind of has the personnel to do that so I think they just caught him at the at the you know at the right time and kind of in the right personnel matchups to kind of you know work well for ASU. Greg Woods with us spokesman review covers Washington State Um, you know Kyle Smith and this team 
21 and 7 overall, 19th in the in the AP poll, sitting right on Arizona's shoulder. What would it mean to win a regular season or a conference tournament championship in this year? Oh man, I mean that would just be enormous. Obviously, I mean I don't know how much they really think about you know just kind of being left behind in realignment. Um, I think more of their angst, at least among the fans, is geared toward you know UW and Oregon for pulling out at the last second. But um, but yeah, I just think like for Kyle Smith, it would just be a huge. I mean, just to pull that team you know out of thin air over the offseason. I mean, losing all those guys, um, including DJ Rodman, who's coming back to Pullman tonight. Uh, for the game and just losing their top four scores and having to replace those guys. I mean, literally, you know, over an off season and then get them ready to play uh, for this fall. I think that would just speak to the coaching job that he's done both, you know, in terms of putting together a team and also just, you know, coaching them within the season. I think he's um, going to be an easy pick for Pac-12 coach of the year, if not national coach of the year. So, and then, I mean, just bringing along those guys, you know, during the season, as I said, I mean, they got so many guys that come from just insane, like, you know, I mean, Miles Rice obviously being cancer, Jalen Wells going from D2, Isaac Jones from Idaho, Oscar Clough uh, from Ajuko. And just, I mean, they just, he just has a way of just, you know, identifying talent and uh, bringing them along during the season. So I think that would be the biggest thing, at least in terms of uh, takeaways for them, and just like, I mean, just the insane coaching job that, you know, that he's done. Two more basketball questions. One being, you know, this is a team that is the second biggest team in the country, but doesn't have great perimeter shooting. Maybe one shooter you mentioned uh, as well. But as I watch this team, I wonder, are they ripe for to knock people out? Are they a bad matchup, or do they do they maybe not have enough outside shooting to play deep in a tournament? That's a question. And then DJ Rodman will make his return. He will uh, be playing in a USC uniform, and this is a guy who left Washington State, jumped in the portal. Does, how badly does he get booed tonight in Pullman? I don't know. I'm actually really interested to see what happens with that because um, he was before my time covering Wazoo, so I don't have the full you know scope of, of his reception here, but it sounds like he was super beloved here in his four years. People loved him, and he was, I mean, it was a big deal that he announced that he's coming back for another year on senior night last year. I mean, I, the way I understand it is that, like, not even Kyle Smith, you know, none of his teammates knew that he was going to make that announcement. And so he does that. <laughs> he gives Kyle a huge hug and all of his teammates, too, and then uh, hops in the portal the next uh, month or two. So I think it'll be interesting because he gave the program a lot. Um, you know, he was the mainstay for them, uh, especially kind of in those uh, down years that they went through um, a couple of the years he was there. So he gave the program a lot. I mean, he graduated from the from the uh, J school, actually, <laughs> at uh, Murrow. So, um, but then, I mean, obviously to turn around and go back on your word, you know, two months after you said you were coming back, that probably did not do him any favors in terms of his reception here. Um but, you know, like I said, he obviously gave, you know, the the uh, team a lot. And so I think there will be some boos for sure. But I think a lot of the fans also appreciate just kind of the time he spent here and, uh, you know, what he did for the program. Do they have the shooting to play deep or are they going to be somebody going to lock them down and, and they struggle to score from the outside? I don't think they really need – I think they have the shooting they need. I mean, Jalen Wells obviously is their best in that way. I mean, I'm looking at it right now, shooting 40 – five percent total 47 percent yeah he's great I mean, he's great just, yeah it's, it's not it's unreal 
I but then I mean they have guys that are like supposed to be able to shoot it like Yakubovsky and Rice but they're I mean they're sitting at like the low 30s right now but I think I mean this might I mean I may live to regret this take but I think that they have what they need in their defense I think that's what matters more in the tournament I think they, they mean they've been able to guard I mean on all the different road trips that they've been on and I think that's something more dependable you can count on now I mean they might run into you know a 12 seed that just shoots the lights out and then I'm sitting here like oh you know what an idiot but <laughs> I think right now they uh the formula that they have is working and uh I, I think it should bode well for another tournament Greg Woods spokesman review in Spokane talking about uh Washington State give me an idea uh the, the schedule comes out for football you get kind of like this finalized version of the football schedule what jumped out at you Greg uh, first of all, just like kind of top, like top heavy it is, or like front heavy. I mean, they they started off with Texas Tech at home, which was already a big deal because I don't think they've ever been up to Pullman. But then you add in the fact that uh, their best receiver Josh Kelly transferred there um, a few months ago, and then just a couple weeks ago they had their offensive line coach uh, take the uh, uh, line coach there, Clay McGuire. So. I mean, you got two guys that are, you know, former Cougs returning, um, not even a full year after they left. That's interesting. And then they play what is, uh, you know, slated as a, you know, neutral side game against UW in Seattle at uh, the Seahawks Stadium, Moon Field. Um, that'll be interesting because a lot of fans are saying, like, you know, why is this, you know, why are we doing them a favor playing them in Seattle? But I think Wazoo is just at a point where, I mean, they have to, you know, take their lumps and, you know, take the revenue spike that this will give them. So, that's interesting. Um, and then they're uh, on the road for a couple of weeks. Um, I, I just think that this is like for a lot of the fans and uh, the players, it's just like the first kind of like, hey, this is a real thing um, in terms of uh, rebuilding the Pac-12. I mean, they've been able to kind of push it down the curb and just because they haven't really had to face it. Um, but but this is it. I mean, you're, you've gotten, you know, eight games against Mountain West teams, um, six of which are, you know, come from the uh, scheduling agreement. So, I think it's just, you know, for the first time, the program's looking like, hey, you know, we've been able to kind of ignore for a little bit at least the fact that uh, the fact is not what it was, but but this is it. And so, um, yeah, I, I, just, I just think it's the kind of a, um, just, just a reality now. Yeah, the conference today, having Teresa Gold, the new commissioner, speak a little bit about the future. She seemed to leave the door open to a rebuild or – um, you know, if there is chaos across the landscape, I mean, you check in with the Washington State fan base. What is the general sentiment right now or the anxiety level with that fan base? Or have they been living with this for long enough, Greg, that that, you know, they're they're finding some peace with whatever happens? I think they are making some peace with with this going on. I mean, I, I think that there was like last August when uh, UW and Oregon pulled out and uh that happened at, at first it was a lot of angst it was a lot of just like this visceral emotion which is you know which is still there today but i think getting control of the pac-12 was huge and it bought for schultz the pat shown a lot of good favor among the fan base um now what that turns into i mean who knows um but i think just winning that was was huge um both in terms of you know their ability to rebuild the conference and also you know, buying them some good favor among the fan base. So I think at this point now, I mean, late February, it's like, hey, you know, we're we're still angry. We're still a little faulty about just the way this unfolded, but it could have gone a lot worse, I think, is the way they see it. And uh, getting this solidified is, one, I mean, in some ways it's like, hey, man, like, you know, we're 
not, um, you know, a member of the Pac-12 like we used to be. Um, but it's also like, hey, this could have got a, you know, could have gotten a lot worse for us. And uh, um, I mean, and I mean, they're still gonna, you know, wear the uh, Pac-12 logo on their, you know, on their jersey. They're gonna have it on the field. So I, I think it's obviously the mission is still to rebuild the conference, whatever that looks like. And um, I, I just think among the fan base, it's, it's a big sense of it of like, you know, we're we're not happy, you know, by any stretch. I don't want to make it, you know, seem like that, but it is what it is. And uh, I think it could have gotten a lot worse for them for sure. Yeah, I've got a one-on-one with Teresa Gold coming up at 4 o'clock. I'm going to ask her, you know, that $255 million war chest, how much of it is actually going to just go to Washington State and Oregon State and they can live off that money, or how much of it will kind of stay within the conference and be used as a war chest to rebuild the conference. I'm I'm curious about that. Uh, Greg, I appreciate you, man. Have a great game tonight. you got a prediction, USC-Washington State in Pullman. Um, I'm thinking the Cougs. I mean, they're like, 12 and one or 13 and one at home this year. Uh, and the one game they lost Oregon to shot the lights out. So um, they're on a roll. They got some rest from last weekend. And uh, I think they'll keep it rolling this weekend. Arizona's got to go uh, and play Oregon. And so uh, maybe the ducks will give them a little trouble and help out Washington state. We'll see how that goes. Greg Woods, get there early, man. That's right. <laughs> Thanks. Tom. All right. Take care. There he goes from the spokesman review. Good stuff from Greg Woods. Washington state's such a good story and uh, has been a story all season long. You talk about what Washington State and Oregon State have had to overcome, and then you combine that with the job that Kyle Smith has done. I do think he's the coach of the year in the Pac-12. I think it's 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 already done. I mean, I think it's done. At the point now where Washington State is sitting in that two seed in the Pac-12 standings, uh, just trailing uh, Arizona by a game now, and... Uh, have an opportunity. They have the tiebreaker on Arizona. Should they end up in a tie with them? But I was going to ask uh, you that. Do you think yeah. they have a chance to win that uh, odds right now to win the Pac-12? Arizona minus two seventy-five. Washington State plus two fifteen. Is there some value on that one? There is in that Arizona has had some misfires. Right? They lost to Stanford. They lost twice to Washington State. Um, you know, Arizona's been better, I guess, more recently. Uh, but you know, they got they have a home game against. Oregon, they go to UCLA, and they go to USC. I think the UCLA game is dicey Thursday in L.A., and if they end up in a tie with Washington State, um, Washington State has the tie break, and you know, they, they're they 2-0 against Arizona this year. So I think there's some value there, sure. If you, want a, if you want a real long shot, John, Oregon still still technically a chance to win Pac-12 75-1. All right, tell, answer me this. What's the money line going to be Thursday when Arizona goes to UCLA? For, you know, will UCLA be uh, you know, better than or less than odds, you know, less than plus 200 on that one to win the game outright? I cuz that's what you're really betting. You're just betting will Arizona Will they beat UCLA next Thursday or not? Yeah, that's that's the game because you're right. You know, Arizona on the road at UCLA. You say it's been good. I mean, I would guess it's probably going to be four point four point spread on that one, five point spread yeah. on that one, right around there. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think plus two hundred for UCLA is about right in that situation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that Arizona has to win that game, and you're right. Like UCLA is really good at home this UCLA season. UCLA has to win that game too, and yeah. and that. The interesting thing is, I was all about UCLA, and I thought, gosh, they're going to be a top four seed. They're going to get a bye in the first round of the conference tournament, playing so well. And then what do they do? They lose to USC. 
and bad loss for UCLA. But, you know, I think UCLA, you know, they need, they're, they're right now a half a game back of the four spot in the men's conference uh, standings in that final bye. So uh, they have an opportunity to uh, make up that ground. And if they're in a must-win situation, uh, who knows? Might be their night. All right, leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. I was looking at my email inbox today. 92,000 unread emails. 92,000. If I haven't got back to you, uh, it's because I am buried in email from sports teams and sports leagues who are all clamoring for attention trying to send out news releases, send out promos, send out uh, the promotions that they're doing during the season, their schedule releases, their plans for media day, their plans for the Pac-12 tournament, their plans for this and that and the other. Um, 92,000 emails. I looked back through them and I was like, gosh, if I could only weed out like the WCC, the Mountain West, few from the Pac-12, some from the Big Ten, why don't you just send me... Better yet, why don't you win games? Trailblazers are guilty, too. They'll send you a whole bunch of things on, you know, what's what's happening for tonight's game or tomorrow night's game. And um, I get it. I get it. You want people to know that you're playing a game. Well, that kind of is the subject of our big splash. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, minor league baseball teams do a lot of things promotionally that will get attention. Thirsty Thursdays come to mind with the Portland Beavers back in the day. Uh, Also, uh, a variety of other minor league promotions. We've talked about them over the years but uh, the philadelphia phillies are backing away from a promotion that's right i'm telling you to win more games and the philadelphia phillies are telling you their fans hey never mind just eat fewer hot dogs for more than a quarter century phillies fans had dollar hot dog night among their best ballpark promotions uh the philadelphia phillies would uh would uh, give away one dollar hot dogs well they are officially ending the promotion they're replacing it with a two-for-one, buy one, get one, at two April games at Citizens Bank Park. Team says the change was made, listen to the lingo here, quote, based on the organization's ongoing commitment to provide a positive experience for all fans in attendance, end quote. What was it to like about Dollar Doggy Night? Well, people were throwing them. Projectile Frankfurters, unruly Phillies fans were chucking their hot dogs during games. The dogs were soaring throughout the stands onto the field. The demand for the dogs also led to some congestion on the concourse, leading to some security and safety concerns. Um, the April 11th game last season turned into a food fight when fans tossed their ballpark franks in several sections, leading to a whole bunch of ejections. It was not just the throwing, said John Weber, senior vice president. Philly's uh, ticket operations. He said it was the concourse, too. Well, that is the tipping point for the Phillies. Now, most of the time, these uh, ballpark promotions are designed to bring people to the ballpark. But the Phillies, they don't need help. 
bringing people to the ballpark. They topped 3 million fans last season, and they still had $3 dog nights on the schedule. Now, they said originally this was a family-oriented idea where people could go and buy four and five and six hot dogs. It's morphed over time into young people throwing wieners at each other. Uh, By the way, uh, ahead of the 2022 World Series, Phillies played the Astros. One of every three fans ate a hot dog at Citizens Bank Park, and that wasn't on a dollar dog night. So one in three ate a hot dog. So they were saying, essentially, you're talking about 7,000 hot dogs per game that were being sold. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they, they're catching some blowback for this, so they're not going to do it anymore. No more dogs at the stadium, at least not discounted dogs. Thursday Thursday came to a uh, similar end, as I remember, with the Portland Beavers. But that was more like it was dollar beers. And there was a good reason why dollar beers weren't a good idea at the ballpark. It was creating some problems that were way more nefarious than the uh, hot dog throwing incident. Stephen, what do you make of this? Do you have? A, are you a hot dog guy at a game? Well, I'm not a hot dog guy, but I will say I've been to a Portland Beavers game back in the day when it was dollar hot dog night, and I did have some dogs that night. Like I'm not normally going to go to a baseball game and get a hot dog. Like I just feel like it's not worth my money. Like I'd rather get other food, especially if I'm going to, like Seattle. Give me the garlic fries. You know, give me some uh, funnel cake. Give me some of those things. But uh, so I'm not necessarily a hot dog guy. But if it's a dollar hot dog night, I'll go and I'll get some dogs. I can't believe that they're doing this. I mean, it just. We talk yeah. about PR all the time, like the Blazers have bad PR all the time. How is this good in any situation? Like, fans are not going to be happy. You Now you're getting attention across the nation. Like, this is Philadelphia. We're talking about this in Portland because it's such a bad decision. I understand you can't have fans throwing wieners at the players out in left field. Like, that's not a good look. You know, left fielders get hit with a wiener in the head. That's not great. But you got to you gotta, you gotta police that. But, I mean, you can't get rid of Dollar Dog Night. It's a tradition down there. Pittsburgh Pirates have six $1 hot dog nights on their schedule. Also, the Rangers do dollar dogs every Wednesday at home games. And the Twins have a dollar dog Tuesdays. And the Kansas City Royals offer low-cost dogs. So you get two hot dogs for 5 bucks at Royals games. So it, it, is this just Philadelphia fans who are throwing the hot dogs? Or I mean, that, it's not, not happening anywhere else. History says it might be Philadelphia fans. Like, that might be the case. But, I mean, because what else are you going to do for baseball? you got 81 home games. And, you know, who's coming out to a Wednesday day game? you got to get them out there. I mean, Is it come just on, me, though? Like, I, there's part of me, maybe it's uh, I've been around this too much. It, I kind of, it smacks to me that, like, the Phillies are just going, hey, we're giving away some profits here. Let's just raise the prices back to the normal $7 hot dogs or whatever they're getting for a hot dog, and and uh, we're doing better off without Like, somebody didn't want to deal with it. Or maybe maybe it is the Philly fans. Maybe they're just so bad they boost Santa Claus. Maybe they're so bad that they can't have nice things. Cheered so Michael he- Irvin when he, like, broke his <laughs> neck on the field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it, I want to believe that it's just Philly fans and, like, that's the reason why they're doing it. But you're probably right. Like, they're looking at it and they're like, look, we can make so much more money if we don't sell it for a dollar because fans are going to show up in Philadelphia all the time. Like, they have a great, rabid fan base with the Phillies. So, like, they're going to lose a lot of money if they're selling dollar dogs. I want to believe it's because they're actually looking out for the best of the team and the players and all that. But it's probably about money. There's a um, there's a way to do it at the ballpark. I have to get a hot dog. So, I'm one of these people, like, I would not throw that hot dog if I had paid for it. I'm not going to Costco and throwing my hot dog if I'm buying a hot but dog. But are you more they... likely to throw the hot dog <laughs> if it's only a dollar? 
I, I, I still gonna probably eat that dog. You know, the unless th- the unless these kids a bad call, you're throwing the dog at him. Unless people in Philadelphia were buying the dogs, thinking I'm gonna buy extras when I'm at the concession stand because I'm gonna eat one and then I'm gonna throw one. Like buy one, throw one. It's not, like not buy one, you got get the one. Snowballs right next yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the other thing. Like, if people are throwing things, just eject them. Then fans would get the message. But I kind of think that the Phillies went, "Hey, we don't need this. We're drawing anyway. We're going to draw three million fans. We have a good product. We're putting on the field. We just don't need to deal with the headache of you know the crowd that buy one get one. You know, or buy a hot dog for a dollar brings. And that and that was kind of the thing. Like, I think when the Portland Beavers had the you know, Thirsty Thursdays, you had a lot of people drinking alcohol at the stadium, and it attracted a different crowd. And so maybe the, uh, the you know, the ballpark stadium security ushers team in general was just going, hey, we don't like the crowd that the that the, dis- that the discount invites. And, and, and frankly, you've seen some of this. Like, it was really interesting. I talked to one of the Las Vegas uh, casino pit bosses one time about kind of what happened during the pandemic. And during the pandemic, they lowered all the rates for the rooms because they were like, hey, we need to get people in the casino. And then they had to lower kind of the limits at the tables. And the uh, casinos were complaining that they didn't like sort of the clientele that that was attracting. And they did not raise the room rates. They just raised the minimums at the tables, Stephen. And so they said, hey, nothing under a $25 table. And suddenly the crowd... The crowd uh, classied up a little I'm bit. I'm not afraid to admit I'm part of that crowd. That you know, <laughs> you, you lower the rates, you lower the prices. I'm there. I'm part of that crowd. So I'm not afraid to admit that. Thirsty Thursday, baby. All right, Teresa Gold is the commissioner of the Pac-12 beginning tomorrow. She had her first news conference today. She'll do a one-on-one interview. You'll hear her next. We'll talk about all the things that Oregon State and Washington State are anxious about. What's the future of the conference? Hear it next. Well, there's a new sheriff in town at the Pac-12 conference. Teresa Gould made her debut media appearance today doing a Zoom call with media. I jumped on the call. I asked a question, but I wanted a more in-depth conversation, a one-on-one conversation. So I've invited her on the show today to, uh, you know, sort of talk about what's going to happen next and what it means to Oregon State and Washington State. And ask the question, is realignment done? So joining us uh, from the Bay Area, Teresa Gold, the commissioner of the Pac-12 Conference. Hey, you got a chance today to to speak in that capacity. I have to ask, what did that feel like to sort of be in that chair as the commissioner? Well, John, I think it felt invigorating. I think I'm just uh, raring to get going. Tomorrow is my first day as Pac-12 commissioner, and it really energized me. I'm excited about the role. I'm excited about the possibilities, and the conversation I think that we had today with the media gave me a real opportunity to share my vision and share some stories and communicate to the world what my aspirations are in this role. You really have two different jobs, because between now and July 1st, you are the commissioner of the Pac-12 with 12 teams in it, and after July 1st, it's like the Pac-2. So how do you balance that as the commissioner? Well, I think the biggest thing in in terms of kind of balancing what the role looks like between now and June 30th and what the role looks like, you know, when you turn the page on July 1 and have two members instead of 12 is the way that I always try to focus on it is I always bring it back to the mission and the student athletes. And the reality is, is despite everything that's transpired between now and June 30th, we still have 
7,000 student athletes that we're here to serve. We have 24 sports that we need to execute and we're running championships and we're selling sponsorships and promoting stories and all of that. So look, I keep saying to the staff, you know, I know that sometimes uh, it feels challenging. It feels uncomfortable given everything that's transpired, but our why and our focus and our mission hasn't changed. I will say that while we're continuing to serve all 12 institutions and execute our normal business between now and June, we're also all still working on the bright future that we have in front of us and building the organization for post July 1 and working on strategy for the future for OSU and WSU and, you know, working with all the national bodies to help uh, pave that future. So it's a delicate balance, but I think our focus on the student-athletes and, and the mission that we have is, is what makes it all work. I want to go back to that farm town in Iowa that you grew up in. What's the town? Tell me about the town. Well, let me tell you, to be accurate here, because my mother might listen to this, and she'll want to make sure I'm accurate. Yeah. So I was born in a town called Jefferson, Iowa, which is in central Iowa, very, very, very small farming community. I'm guessing, you know, a few thousand people. And uh, we moved when I was literally like weeks old. So I was generally raised in Burlington, Iowa. And Burlington, Iowa is a town of around 30,000-ish, I think. And it's right on the Mississippi River, a real blue-collar town on the Mississippi River in southeast Iowa where Iowa, Illinois, and Missouri kind of all uh, come together. It was, it was a great place to grow up, for sure. That town, um, originally called Flint Hill, according to Wikipedia. But uh, <laughs> give me an idea. I, you know, my, I grew up in a town that was a similar size, a small town. We had one McDonald's. We had, we had one little movie theater. What was your town like? Uh, it was similar. It was very small, very friendly. Everybody knew everybody. Your neighborhoods, you know, were very community-focused. Burlington is actually a really beautiful town. I know people don't think of Iowa as being a hilly state, but Burlington is kind of on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River, and it's, it's really beautiful, and it's famous for Snake Alley. And Lombard Street in San Francisco claims to be the crookedest street in the world, but I think Snake Alley in Burlington gives it um, a run for its money. Um, but it is a very slow pace, two high schools, one Catholic high school, one public high school, you know, not a lot of uh, entertainment uh, options, but a great place to grow up and a lot of community focus for sure. I guess the story goes that there wasn't uh, a girls softball team. Your dad and yourself petitioned to play baseball. And how did that go? What, what was that time of your life like? Yeah, it was an interesting time, John. And, and I have four siblings and we're all give or take a year to 18 months apart. And I was kind of the primary athlete in the family. I played basketball, I played softball, I ran track, I played tennis, any sport I could get involved in, I wanted to. But softball and basketball were really my passions. And I really, really wanted to play softball. But at the time, and again, this was, you know, in the late 70s, at the time, there were no well-developed softball leagues. And it just infuriated my father that I didn't have an opportunity to play softball and so, you know, we fought. We literally had to go to the city council and write all kinds of letters and um, try to get the, the community to either A, add a softball league, or B, allow me to play baseball. And ultimately, I did both. 
I played baseball for a while on uh, a boys' little league and then transitioned over. Eventually, when we were successful getting a softball league, uh, I played in that league. It was interesting, John. I was back in Iowa um, in August to visit my mother, and my father has since passed, but I actually found the letter that he wrote to the city council to address the issue of not having a softball um, league in the community. So it was pretty inspiring, and uh, I take after my dad quite a bit. One thing that he had in him was a lot of fight and a lot of grit. I love that. I have three daughters, and I I think one of the things I'd love for them to say someday is, hey, my dad had my back, and you're saying that today. Teresa Gold with us, uh, Pac-12 commissioner. First day on the job will be tomorrow, Friday. Um, I want to maybe rehash a little bit of what, what went on in the news conference earlier today um the idea of the pac-12 networks as a business um it sounds like you want to keep the doors open what what is that plan for the pac-12 networks well john we are planning on keeping the doors open um our our board the two presidents from oregon state and washington state made the decision to continue to operate that facility at least through the 24-25 academic year we're still in the process of kind of developing those business plans and, and trying to really look into how we can leverage that um, as a business asset. But sure, we're going to be providing production services to Oregon State and Washington State. Obviously, we want to showcase and provide the exposure that those programs are accustomed to receiving. So we'll be producing live events. We'll be producing content. They also have some production commitments in their WCC affiliate agreement to put contests uh, on ESPN+. Plus. So we'll be producing all of those events that take place on those two campuses as well. But I think in the long term, the Pac-12 Networks part of it and kind of the opportunity to figure out long-term how we leverage this asset in our future conference alignment strategy, I think is going to be really important. And it's a it's an unbelievable facility with state-of-the-art technology. I believe we have a, a lot of talent on that staff as well. They're the best in the business. And we're really trying to figure out long-term how it can not only be a profitable business entity, but also something, given the unique nature of it, that we can leverage since it's really a one-of-a-kind um, facility at the A5 level. The Mariners did something interesting in spring training caught my eye. They are doing kind of a webcast of the diamond, and they just have a camera that's fixed on the diamond, and they synced it with the radio broadcast. And I, I kind of got me thinking, like, could the Pac-12 network do that for some of the smaller events? Would that be something that fans would tune into? I don't know. I think, and then you've got, obviously, in the Bay Area with that location and uh, and the technology to the ability to, to become a production facility and, so it just doesn't sound like any, that the presidents are willing to give up on that. That's a that's a that's a nice asset. Um, the college football playoff became a topic of conversation earlier today, as you know, people asking you, what is the mission? You know, let's talk from an Oregon State, Washington State standpoint. What? How do you see the the mission or the motivation for the conference tied to the playoff? Yeah, and I think that's really important, John. I mean, as we all know, I mean, both teams have been nationally competitive and, and having viable football programs on those campuses is a priority. And the CFP model is a critical part of that. So for me, the mission and, and kind of my goal sitting at that table with the other A5 commissioners is really a few different things. Number one, the access question is really important. And we need to 
think about and talk about models moving forward post-2026 that, you know, reward and provide access for performance on the field so that deserving teams that have competed at the level and finished their season successfully to be in a position to make that field, that they have the access and that the model allows that access. So that's certainly a priority. There's the revenue distribution piece, and, you know, we need to continue to talk about with all of the unknowns around where OSU and WSU will land after 2026, making sure that in the future model that they're considered and um, that they're treated fairly and as A5 programs, that they benefit um, from that revenue appropriately. And then the last thing that I mentioned earlier today on the presser was just one of the things that I think we realized with what has transpired with the PAC-12 is that we need a process within the CFP and within the CFP governance to address unanticipated issues right? We need to be nimble enough. We need to be adaptable enough to make sure that whatever we put in place, that we can react to and adjust and adapt when there are other changes in the marketplace and in the membership, which I'm confident will happen at some point during the term of the next agreement. The, you know, it's interesting because it's a moving target, right? We, everyone kind of speculates what's going to happen to college athletics. Would football split away? Will the NCAA be a thing? Uh, will the playoff expand to 12, 14, 16? What will it be? It's this, this weird moving target. And, you know, there's some uncertainty in the ACC and other places. And so how do you navigate that? It, you know, on one hand, moving towards rebuilding the conference, if that's what you have to do. And on the other hand, positioning these two conference schools to be in good position along with the conference should should opportunity present itself. Well, I think a couple things. I mean, I really feel like all of this, seismic change, while it is unpredictable, I, I think it's to our advantage. Like, I, I really believe that, that where we're going to be in a month or a year or 18 months is going to look different than where we are today. Like, certainly what happened on August 4th, nobody would have anticipated, but I don't think that's the only domino to fall. I think there are going to be others as a result of either what's happening at the CFP level, what's happening with litigation, what's happening at the NCAA. And I think my job in partnering with the two athletic directors and the two presidents is to make sure that we're attacking all of this change and not only protecting the interests of OSU and WSU, but thinking through strategically how to capitalize on any change that might be coming down the pike, but then also to be influencers in that change. Right? We can't just sit back and passively wait for the change to happen. We have to utilize our governance seats, utilize the influence that we do have to influence the change um, to our benefit. Is there a chance you guys could do something bold and forward thinking and and just go, you know we're you know we're here to invest in other teams and rebuild this thing and we're going to broadcast on the Pac-12 network and keep that thing a real TV network and try to sell rights? Or is that all sound like, hey, that's great to talk about, it's great for people in message boards and comment sections to banter about, but first you have to take care of dotting the I's and crossing the T's and what's in front of you? I guess from a commissioner standpoint, how do you, how do you kind of balance that, your two roles, being visionary but also dealing with what's in front of you? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be we have to be realistic and we need to spend our time on the options and the scenarios that we think 
have the most likely uh, likelihood of success. But, John, I don't think anything is off the table. Like, I think that, you know, we have to stay open-minded to anything and everything that is out there. And I owe that to these programs. Like, I owe it to these programs to not have any foregone conclusions about which, which option is the best. Because the reality is, is today, as we're sitting today, we don't even know what all of the options are because things are changing so rapidly. So it's really my job to not, not, you know, not eliminate any options, but be open-minded about it, take them on, and be prepared to evaluate all the options so that hopefully we have some decisions and some considerations to make, but lots of different um, options on the table. What happens if there are Pac-12 records set in games against Mountain West and WCC schools next season? Are they Pac-12 records? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're, you know, we're keeping all of the archives. Um, in fact, that was something that we've been working on for months now, like all the documents, all the records. And I have to tell you a funny story about that, John. Um, my team, my compliance and governance team was in the office last week going through old compliance and governance records, eligibility petitions and such, and they found a hard copy document of an eligibility petition for my husband from 1988. That's awesome. <laughs> which was hilarious. So, yes, I mean, we're, we're keeping archives. We're, you know, restoring the history and, um, you know, the records are all, are all part of that. The, the, in, the intellectual property, like, you know, obviously the PAC-12 is still the PAC-12, but is there any, I guess I'm kind of wondering who owns the rights to the Bill Walton footage and UCLA wants to use that. Do they need your permission? And, you know, Oregon needs to, if they want to use stuff where they're going, do they need to get the PAC-12 to sign off on that? How does all that work? So that is, that's a really, really important issue, John, not only in terms of the asset part of it and the revenue potential, but also just the history and the, and the legacy when we talk about archiving. And that is one issue that has not yet been resolved. I'm going to be honest with you about that. That is still, still being discussed. Don't have resolution on that issue yet. Teresa Gold, PAC-12 commissioner, is with us. Um, okay, you got a women's conference basketball tournament, men's tournament coming up. Um, I'm excited for both. I, the women's tournament, especially with Oregon State in it, there are a lot of people in our region that are excited. The men's tournament's got Washington State uh, in it, and uh, I think it would be kind of it, it might be kind of a fitting finish to see those two programs matter in the end in this tournament. But how excited are you from a conference standpoint and as a basketball person uh, for this tournament? Oh, I am beyond excited. I mean, I'm I'm giddy. Like I'm literally counting down the days and. I met with both our women's basketball sport administrator and our men's basketball sport administrator yesterday and today to talk about postseason prognosis and how we're looking. Ticket sales are through the roof. Um, there's obviously a ton of fan interest in both of these tournaments. So I'm really excited. And uh, my excitement is for a lot of different reasons. I mean, number one, we're going to see some really, really great basketball I mean, you look at it on the women's side, and our depth is just absolutely unreal. On the men's side, you know, it hasn't been, I think, the season that we had all hoped, but still really, really exciting, and it's awesome to see what Kyle Smith and Washington State are, are doing right now. But part of what I love about it, John, is these championships are one of the few opportunities that you have 
when you work in a conference office to actually really, really be around the student-athletes and the energy of the student-athletes and the joy of the student-athletes. And I always tell our team, going into these championships, I said, we're in the business of making memories. And you go to these championships and you see the the excitement and you see the memories that are being made and it just it makes it all worthwhile and it's really rewarding. And I would also say it's it's one of the best things for our staff for us to all be together and to, you know, support each other and enjoy our time with these programs. It's it's the best thing that we do, no question. All right, before I cut you loose, Kirk Schultz, uh, one of the two Pac-2, Pac-12 presidents. Do you get mad when people say Pac-2, by the way? I gotta, I don't want to offend anybody, but I, I think it's an easy way to say, hey, I'm not talking about the 10 departing schools when I ask this question. But I don't get mad, but I tell my team never to say that. It, and, then, and then the other thing that drives me crazy is people will say the Pac-12 is ending. And I go, well, the Pac-12 as you knew it is ending. But don't say the Pac-12 is ending because I do think fans at Oregon State, Washington State deserve better than people saying that. Hundred percent, hundred percent. The Pac-12 is continuing along those lines. Kirk Schultz said in an interview a week ago that he didn't think realignment was over. Do you think we're headed towards like a shape-shifting, catastrophic type realignment? Are we talking about just uh, some touches here, touches there? Uh, I'm not going to hold you to this if if chaos breaks loose. But what's your feel on what's going to happen? in the next two years, in this term that you've got so far? Well, look, I think for sure there's going to be further realignment. I think the, the questions in my mind are old. Number one, how catastrophic is it going to be? Like, is it going to be transformational, like everything breaks loose? Or is it going to be, you know, minor tweaks? Like, we've, we've continued to see, I feel like every week I pick up the paper and say, oh, another shift in you know one of the group of five conferences like we saw this week i think the question is really more about timing like for me the timing is what i question in my mind and i think a lot of that is going to be contingent upon how quickly some of these things that are happening nationally move right the litigation the ncaa project d1 like some of these cfp decisions like there's just a lot of moving parts right now that are going to influence I think the further shifts that might come down the road. So my question is more around timing, um, but I do think we could see something significant over time. All right, and then finally, you know, we've reported about the the war chest that the conference or the schools will have available, and I guess I'm trying to figure out, you know, distribution-wise, is the plan for Washington State and Oregon State to take a distribution that's similar or comparable to what they've taken in prior years uh, in media rights? When you know under the old deal, or how does the the settlement money sort of work as it pertains to dividing between the schools and the conference itself? Look, I think the settlement money is really kind of viewed as separate and for a separate purpose than the normal conference distributions. So we are working right now, like literally over the coming weeks, about kind of finalizing a budget and a scope of services and all of the financials around what the organization is going to look like in FY25. And there will be a distribution from that. We still have conference revenue coming in. We still have NCAA basketball money. We still have CFP money. We still have Rose Bowl money. We we have revenue coming in that will allow us to distribute a, a normal conference distribution 
to those two institutions. It won't be at the same level that they're accustomed to because of the media rights piece, but there will be a distribution. But until we actually get the budget approved and are really clear on what the organization is going to look like, I can't tell you what that number is going to look like, but there will be a normal conference distribution. The settlement money and the war chest, as you call it, I think is really intended for different long-term, more strategic um, uses. Are we we talking about a possible rebuild there? Yeah, possible rebuild, realignment. Like there's all kinds of things that that money um, could be used for. Teresa Gold, thank you. Congrats on uh, your, uh, I guess, uh, was that the appetizer today to, you you know, your first day? I don't know. I hope they're paying you conference commissioner money today because you're doing that job. It's all good. I I, uh, I love speaking on behalf of the work that I do, and it's it's work that I love, and I'm happy to have an opportunity to continue to do it. I, I just love that you come from a campus, and I think to you know so often we see sort of a, a departure from people who understood what the jobs were. And your time at UC Davis and UC Berkeley certainly connects you back, and and uh, your small town roots as well. But thank you, Teresa. Thanks for doing this interview. You got it. Nice to nice to visit, and I look forward to seeing you in Vegas next week. Teresa Gold, Pac-12 Commissioner. You heard it here exclusively, one-on-one interview. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. Oregon will be off to the Big Ten Conference. Oregon State, Washington State in the Pac-12 or Pac-2 or whatever you want to call it. Anna's in the studio. Anna, you heard Teresa Gold, the new commissioner of the Pac-12 Conference, speaking there. First one-on-one interview after being appointed as commissioner. She did a group interview earlier today. Uh, immediate impressions. You heard her. You're one of these media coaches. What'd you think? I thought she was great. I feel like it's the first time in quite a while that I sincerely have hope for where the conference is headed. Um, I didn't really know anything about her, but um, I I like the roots, you know, like I like her story. I like uh, where she came from. I can tell there's some fight in her, and but it's not um, unwielded. You know, like I think she's going to be strategic and smart and um, a collaborator as well. They have a tough road. I mean, it's it's they have a bad hand. Like if you're walking behind them at a casino and you, Taylor's got a uh, you know an eight or a nine showing, they're sitting on a twelve or a thirteen here. All right, <laughs> and they're in a bad position with their hand. Um, I was concerned about her after the earlier news conference earlier today because she seemed to defer to Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president, too readily. And I thought, gosh, you know, there was at one point where, you know, Schultz looked at her and said, well, Teresa, I guess I'll take this question. Um, and, I, and I just didn't think it was a great situation uh, in, a, in a great representation. But I also thought she was in a tough spot because she's doing this Zoom interview we all don't look human in Zoom interviews. She's alongside Kurt Schultz. She's got a fake background behind her. She's trying not to blink. You know, she's getting a bunch of media questions that were from people around the country that some of them, um, you know, weren't that interested in the Pac-12. They were asking more big-picture questions about, you know, the Big Ten and the SEC, what plans they're up to. And and so I think, you know, I just wanted her to be a little stronger in that in that news conference earlier and so i do think she was much better in that one-on-one yeah and you know it may be a situation where there's an adjustment period right she's just taking on this role she's not even officially on the job yet until tomorrow and 
you know, I don't blame her for being a little cautionary in her first news conference about coming out and saying too much, especially when the waters are what they are. I mean, there's so much potential change in the next year or two. Um, I can tell that they're trying to be flexible. They're trying to be um, able to adapt to whatever comes down the road so that they are positioned well to emerge from you know, the last year and a half with with some success. Key takeaways. Um, she talked about the Pac-12 network future. Sounds like they're going to keep the doors open, let it be a production entity, let it do work for Oregon State and Washington State and kind of be this, um, you know, I guess it's a difference maker, so to speak, you know, because they're playing Mountain West Conference teams and WCC teams in sports. They, those teams don't have a network at their disposal or backing them. So it is a little bit of a differentiator uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, what how different they are from uh, from the rest of the teams in the Mountain West Conference and the WCC. I also thought it was interesting, um, you know, at the end of the interview when I said to her, you know, where does the $255 million go? And she sort of lets on that, you know, that's being set aside for strategic reasons. Alarm bells went off in my head, and I'm like, oh, that's a rebuild fund. That's a war chest, so to speak, to go out and try to get San Diego State, try to get Boise State, try to get Fresno State, try to get Colorado State, UNLV, and Air Force, and there's a potential there that you've got a couple hundred million dollars to go do that. Like, that's that's a real thing. Now, can you find a media partner that will buy all that content from you? That's another question, and at a number that makes sense, but feels to me like uh, they are not just going to live off that money and then rest on their laurels. I also like that she's a fighter. The story about you know her and the softball team and uh, you know wanting to play baseball and not being allowed to do it, and her dad having to write a letter to the city council, and you know that's somebody who's fought for some things in her life. Mm-hmm. And you know her background is she you know she worked at UC Davis, she worked at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. She graduated from Berkeley with a uh, master's degree. She went to Iowa State uh, before that. So I like the fact that she's got some connection to the college campuses, has been an administrator on college campuses. So uh, I don't think she's like one of these commissioners that's going to be detached. But I also don't think she's a normal commissioner. These are not normal times. You have a two-team conference. You have a weird conference dynamic, an office dynamic, where you got a whole bunch of employees who were informed that right after the conference tournaments in basketball – they're free to go home. They're not going to come back. Mm-hmm. And so you got a whole bunch of employees in the office. 95% of the employees will not work beyond June 30th uh, in the office. And you have a whole group of employees who just found out, like, hey, after the conference basketball tournaments, you're going to get your severance and you're free to go. And so it's a really weird time. How do you get people to work for now and, and then knowing that they're not working you know, beyond June 30th? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's a situation that a lot of organizations face when things are sunsetting. But, you know, I, I guess I came away from that, and maybe I'm being too Pollyanna, but I came away from it with a little bit of hope. Like, okay, she's not as, you know, she's not a bulldog, as far as I can tell, like Brett Yormark was, right? No, she's not, she's not, not that person. dynamic like that, but few people are like him. So I guess after the last, you know, 
couple of years, what I worry about is somebody who is too collegial, because yeah. that's been the criticism of George Klyovkov. Is like, well, he went on the listening tour, and he was a really nice guy, but was he too nice of a guy? And that's why the conference wound up in the predicament that it that it wound up in. Yeah, and part of it is I, I was told, too, that, you know, she's well-liked. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why they like her. Sure. She's a personable human being. Yeah. And I talked to her earlier today for about 10 minutes off air, mm -hmm. and I can see why people like her. Yeah. She's just, she's a nice person. And, you know, she comes from that college background, and she, I honestly think she cares about the kids. Yeah. Like, that's new. Yeah. That's not, I don't hear Greg Sankey, and I don't hear Brett Yormark, and I don't hear Tony Petiti kind of talking about, I will fight for these kids. Mm -hmm. You know, they're fighting for the presidents and the chancellors, and they're fighting for television dollars. But she's playing a little bit different game, and, and maybe she's the right person for the next couple of years. Now, her contract with Oregon State and Washington State extends for just two years. So she'll just be, like, on the job for two years. It suggests to me that that's the timeline. Kirk Schultz, Washington State president, said there's no timeline today. Nonsense. This is like a two-year thing. <laughs> okay. you got to figure out, because you can't play Mountain West and you can't play WCC forever. Right. So here's what I think is going to happen. Bold predictions. Okay, you ready? Okay. I think that Oregon State and Washington State obviously are going to keep one eye on everything else going on in the landscape of college athletics. One eye on the ACC. One eye on are, are the Big Ten and the SEC up to no good. One eye, maybe I should have two eyes on those, but one <laughs> eye on like what's happening with the playoff expansion and the nonsense going on with that. You know, as far as the Big Ten and the ACC or SEC are concerned, they they would want buys into the championship game probably. But it, you know, she got to keep an eye on that. The conference does. The other eye has to be on this plan to rebuild and identifying. Is it those two schools that I mentioned? Is it San Diego State, Boise State, Fresno State, Air Force, Colorado State, UNLV? Those six are the ones that come to mind, and I think you could fashion a group of five conference that would be the best group of five conference out there. That With a straight face, you could say, hey, we are the best conference that's rooted in the western part of the United States, bar none. Now, could you expand that? to include some WCC members? Possibly. Like, could you could you get Gonzaga in there as mm -hmm. a basketball school? And could you bring, you know, maybe you only take Air Force as a football school? You know, so all of a sudden you start to think creatively and say, okay, could you make this thing better than, a little bit better and sprinkle a little more value over it? But, you, you know, I think they have that. Her comment at the end about the, you know, that money will be used for strategic reasons just jumped at me. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay. That's not like Oregon State and Washington State going to lay back and just live off the fat of the land. Mm -hmm. Like they just won $255 million. You always see the stories about those people who hit the lottery and end up broke. You know, it's not like Oregon State and Washington State are going to be like, let's go buy a new, let's go buy a house and then buy a car and buy some jewelry. No, I think they're setting that money aside going, we're going to need that when and if this other stuff doesn't work out and there's nowhere for us to go. We're going to need that money to go out and pay buyout fees uh, for San Diego State and others. And you understand the landscape a lot better than most of us as far as nationally and how the Pac-12 would be received if those were the schools that were added to it 
if that if, if in two years that's what Washington State and Oregon State pull together as a conference, how will that be perceived across the country? It's still going to be viewed as a group of five. They're going to be viewed as less than they are. There's no way around it. When you, you know, when you are like I was talking to a longtime college administrator this morning on the phone, and you know he was saying, you know, look, the message to America is Washington State and Oregon State didn't have enough value mm-hmm. to be included in the Big 12, ACC, Big 10. Yeah. They didn't have enough value. Right. Okay? And we all know that. They didn't have the media market. It's not their fault. Like, mm-hmm. anybody else could have ended up in that same predicament. But, you know, save for your geography or your brand. Like, yeah. Oregon, if Oregon doesn't have Phil Knight, Oregon's, you know, like, right next to Oregon State right, right now. Right. So, here's, so, it's not their fault, but they didn't have enough value. And so, the perception of them... If they, if you add Boise State and San Diego State, Fresno State, Air Force, Colorado State, UNLV, next to them, the perception is going to be that's Mountain West plus, mm-hmm. or it's it's Power Five minus. Mm-hmm. It's not on the Power Four level. It's mm-hmm. not there. Mm-hmm. So you know they are. I think in that now the other thing that could happen is if you just added those schools and you got to eight, what they could do is sit around and wait to see. Does the ACC implode? Mm -hmm. And if it does, do Stanford and Cal want to come back and join that? Now, I don't think Stanford and Cal want to be anywhere near Boise State and Fresno State in a conference. Right. They just don't. They they don't want to rub shoulders with that. So there is some danger there if you do take those schools of sort of identifying that, hey, we are legitimately saying we're 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 the strongest group of five conference in America, but we're still a group of five conference. Mm -hmm. Let's take some phone calls. Mike's in Seattle. Wants to weigh in on Teresa Gould's interview. What do you think? Well, I think she's a good sales lady, John. It's buzzword bingo, okay? I worked at a major corporation in the Seattle area. It's buzzword bingo about, you know, about culture and this kind of stuff. You know, the fact of the matter, I like your last show comment. You know, the market has already shown what Oregon State and Washington State are worth, right? You can't, you know, you can't go rub two pennies and make gold, you know? And, and if they hang on to the Pac-12 network, then they've got to have product to put on the air, and then advertisers have to pay to have that on there. And if they're just going to have an Oregon State versus, uh, I'll say, Eastern Washington, yeah. that'll be fun to watch because I'm a Beaver yeah. fan. But, but you know, they're not going to sell it for a profit. So Yeah. Uh, your, your phone's driving me crazy, but I'm going to hang up on you. But I, I get where you're going with it. Here's the other thing. Like, don't mistake – Teresa Gold saying the Pac-12 network stores are going to stay open, that we're going to keep it as a production. So don't mistake that for we're going to be a network. Mm-hmm. It might just be, and here's the dirty secret that, you know, I'm kind of, I kind of been poking around this. It might just be that the Pac-12 network does production work for Amazon, Apple. They both have sports properties that they are they need production help with. It might just be that they do a lot of web-based streaming and social media production for those two schools, and they are just pumping out content left and right. They're they're wired in that way already. It might be that they end up contracting because they have the production capability to go out and produce football games. They might go out and produce a football game for the Mountain West Conference. They might go out and produce a football game for the Big Ten, the Big Ten Network. That's the irony, is they have the production capability they're located in the Pacific time zone. They are wired directly. All the Pac-12 schools have direct infrastructure 
to that Pac-12 headquarters. So Colorado, Utah, Oregon, Washington, USC, UCLA, the Arizona schools, they all are still wired directly to the Pac-12 network production facility. Mm. So if I'm the Big Ten network or the Big 12's partners, Fox, uh, and I, and I, or ESPN, and I, I go, hey, we want to produce a game, mm-hmm. the Pac-12 network could end up doing that. Right. So you end up being a little side hustle for Oregon State and Washington State. This thing is churning and making revenue and producing content and and you know and maybe someday when you put the conference back together again yeah you go okay we're going to produce all of our games through this hub mm-hmm. but it's an asset nonetheless and so i think it was interesting to say hear her say we're committed to this for 24 25 so they're going to give it a year and kind of see what the business of it mm-hmm. looks like and to the buzzword bingo thing i get it like you know she has a bad hand what are you supposed to do she can't fold so yeah, she's got. Of course, she's going to have some buzzwords in her. But I, my thing is, I, my fear is that she's just going to be a manager, yeah, who's been left in charge of the conference, mm-hmm. babysit the conference while we play this out. Mm-hmm. My hope is that she'll show some vision and some fight. We'll see what happens. Leave it here. We got to talk about some weirdness in this segment, but we'll also take more of your calls. You want to weigh in on Pac-12 Commissioner Teresa Gold? In her first interview, first public one-on-one interview, right here on this show, Dave in Vancouver has some thoughts on it. Dave, go ahead. Yeah, so I really liked uh, how she sounded. I mean, very positive, and you know, if she does what I think she can do, I think this could be a, like a great movie in like ten years. I like it, or a, a nice documentary or something. Yeah, I, I go see that movie, especially. Story. If it ends up with Washington State and Oregon State rejoining the major world of college football, that would be a good ending. Yeah. All the uh, crud they had to walk through, the ridicule that they had to take, the anxiety, the sleepless nights. The backstabbing? The, Hello? <laughs> my favorite part of the whole last year was um, talking with one of the Pac-12 head coaches in the days before – Oregon and Washington left, and him likening the scene in the room with the chancellors and presidents, all of them above the table, nodding to each other in solidarity, but below the table, they all had guns pointing at each other. At each other, That's what he said to me. And he says, I think they're all pointing guns at each other under the table, but above the table, they're going, this is great. Let's do this. That'll, that'll be yeah. a really good scene in the... Uh... Movie. Oh, speaking of movies, we saw a really good movie last night. Um, if you get a chance to go see it, uh, if you haven't seen it already, the movie is called Origin. This is the Malcolm Brogdon production. Stephen, do you know this movie? Um, the Malcolm Brogdon production? No, I don't yeah, know about see, this. You movie. know nothing about no. nothing, man. <laughs> what are you gonna get out? Um, Chris Paul and Malcolm Brogdon. Don't take that. I know. Uh, Chris Paul and Mal- Malcolm Brogdon are producers. They're co- they're uh, they have minor production credits in this movie called Origin. And I don't want to spoil it, but um, it's kind of a it's a really interesting movie. It's a little bit documentary, a little bit not. How would you describe the movie, Anna? Uh, I think it's gripping. Um, it's based on the book Cast, The Origin of Our Discontents, and it's written by an author who traveled to India and Germany to examine how the caste system of hierarchy is actually the root of American slavery, uh, the Holocaust, 
and the present-day caste system in India. In it's, heavy. It's, he- it's, it's heavy. It's got some heavy stuff. It's not a it. light watch. I was powering through the popcorn <laughs> as I was watching this. <laughs> yeah. But it, um, it was, I'm glad I saw it. It was one of those movies at the end that I was like, this is a really important film. Yeah. And I hope people go see it. And then the credits are rolling, and there's Chris Paul and, and Malcolm Brogdon in the, uh, yeah. in the credits. So how about them apples? So go see Origin if you haven't already. Um, all right, so Anna, let, let me ask you this. Tom Brady in the news. This is, <laughs> this is not in your five at five. No, it was it was close. I thought about it. Um, I had to watch it more than once because, you know, he's put out some videos lately that uh, are look fake or were fake, and so I just had to make sure this was real. And yeah, that anything on the duped. Internet can be doctored. Right. So supposedly 46-year-old Tom Brady... Uh, is faster than 22-year-old Tom Brady. He ran the 40-yard dash recently at age 46, and he beat his combine time from 2000. And I guess what they did was, in a brilliant marketing move for Tom Brady, Inc., they superimposed the video from 2000 Yeah. Uh, you know, and combined it with well, he had the, a bad time. the current time in in the year 2000 yeah he, he ran a 52840 mm-hmm. so running it again at age 46 yeah all he had to do is you know can you beat a 528 <laughs> that's you know so is it possible that he could be faster at 46 than 22 yeah he's reverse aging he's like mm. benjamin button right now i i don't know why i went to the cream in the clear right now in my mind <laughs> So, but again, he also have had, he's posted some videos where he's made holes in one on the golf course that were doctored. Right. And uh, this could just be case of Tom Brady being a better, um, should I say, editor of video at age 46 <laughs> than he was at age 22. <laughs> That's possible as well. Um, all right. So also not in the five at five NFL prospects at the combine saying some weird stuff. Yeah, I don't. I left this out of the five at five because it's just a little bit too weird for me. But um, there's uh, okay. So Texas Tech's Tyler Owens, he's a favorite to post the fastest forty at this year's combine. Says he doesn't believe in space, as in other planets, and feels that flat Earth theories have some valid points. Okay. <laughs> there's that guy. Yep, and then uh, there's another guy, and I don't know if you've heard about this whole birds aren't real thing. I hadn't. I hadn't. Have you heard of this, Stephen? No. Have you heard of this? I have heard of this. Yeah, it is. Uh, oh wait, <laughs> it's a fascinating thing if you want to deep dive into some weird okay. theories. Yes. Yeah, so what do you know about it? It's the birds aren't real movement. Yeah, I, 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 that's about all I know. I've looked that at it like one day. Yeah, that they're not. That real. they're actually drones. <laughs> there's, there's a guy, yeah, yeah named Peter McIndo. He created a satirical conspiracy that winged animals are actually spy drones for the U.S. government. And one of the draft prospects, film <laughs> Illinois football star Tip Riemann, uh, says that uh, he believes birds are not what they seem. Well, uh, I, I think if you can play, the, the, uh, the professional sports world doesn't care if you are a flat earther. If you can run a 4-3-40, get on my team. Yeah. <laughs> If you can play, who cares? Moon conspiracy, <laughs> flat earther, okay, put nodding. Your t- put your tinfoil hat on under have, your helmet. We can live with that. We can live with that if you can play. I think Reven was tongue-in-cheek, but he said, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? 
How do we know that? <laughs> how do we know good that point. power lines aren't pigeon recharging stations? <laughs> well, there's that too. The five <laughs> at five is coming up. I want you here for it. This 14-team college football playoff model and the discussion around it is a circus. We'll talk about it later this hour. SEC and the Big Ten, they want guarantees of automatic berths and first-round buys. There's a big debate, a lot of discussion. The ACC and the Big 12 cannot be happy about what they see developing. The SEC and the Big Ten in the latest proposal want to have first-round buys guaranteed to their conference champion in the playoff. A lot of nonsense circulating in that world. We'll talk about it. And a lot more coming up. Anna's got the five at five. I mean, why stop at the buys in the first round? Why not just say, hey, we, you know, forget everybody else. We like to have, uh, we'll have a 14 team playoff, our top seven against your top seven. Our conference champion gets a buy, your conference champion gets a buy. And the rest of you watch. Like, I, I don't get it. At some point, I think the fans who have long been college football fans who have rooted for their teams, are going to get fed up with the nonsense going on as it pertains to the Big Ten and the SEC. Shame on them. Just make a bracket off the preseason poll, John. Don't even play the games. Why have a conference championship game? What would it mean? Yeah, just do it on paper. Just, yeah, just settle it, uh, settle it the uh, old-fashioned way. Settle it on the uh, new NCAA video games coming out. There, that would make sense. And give the players a free copy of the game as compensation. All right, Anna's got the five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. Number one. Gonzaga finds itself in an interesting situation. Uh, You know, for the past 25 seasons, excluding the canceled 2020 tournament, the Bulldogs have gone from Cinderella to, you know, tournament mainstay. They're always talked about as favorite to win the national championship. But this year, a spot in the tournament is not guaranteed for the Zags. So Mark Few is in a position that uh, has been rather rare for him. They're sitting in second place of the West Coast Conference, and they've got uh, the last two games of the regular season could be make-or-break opportunities as they're trying to make it into March Madness. Yeah, they, you know, they, this is not the normal year for Gonzaga, and this might signal a little bit of the weakening, of course, of Gonzaga basketball, or maybe it's just a down year. But you've got St. Mary's and San Francisco that are right there with Gonzaga in the standings. St. Mary's has been really good this season, undefeated in conference play. San Francisco right on the heels of Gonzaga. That conference tournament, also in Vegas, by the way, in the next couple of weeks, is going to be uh, lights out. and. I think Gonzaga will get a little favorable treatment from the uh, selection committee if all things are equal based on their brand. Uh, still think they are a tournament team, but they're not in a comfortable position. Huge game tonight for Gonzaga at San Francisco as well. They got Am- at yeah. San Francisco and then their last game's at St. Mary's. So, like Anna said, they have a chance to play their way into the tournament, but, man, two losses here on the road, that may hurt them in uh, trying to get that at large bit. Yeah, and, and, and two losses – on the road in those games, and then maybe not a great showing in the conference tournament uh, could spell the end for them. Uh, you know, as far as the uh, the bubble is concerned. But I also just think that the the shine of Gonzaga 
amid all of this football realignment really became evident is, you know, Gonzaga was running around the country trying to preach that basketball was undervalued and that they were undervalued and they belonged to the Big 12, they belonged to the Pac-12, and it turned out there wasn't that much appetite for it. It just kind of showed you, as we have known, like 80 to 85 cents of every dollar in college athletics is is generated by football. And so, you know, Gonzaga's good, really good as a revenue generator from a basketball school standpoint, have a wonderful TV deal with ESPN that is exclusive to them, but not quite the shine that I think they thought they had as it pertained to maybe joining one of these other conferences. So uh, they got to get it done on the court. And you can have one season like this, but you better come back next season better. Number two. Uh, Caitlin Clark just announced that she'll be heading to the WNBA draft after her senior year with the Hawkeyes. She broke the news on her Instagram saying that she will forego the one year of eligibility that she had remaining due to COVID in order to turn pro. So she's seeing the money on the other side of the rainbow. She's also going to avoid a lot of questions during the NCAA tournament and the Big Ten tournament. She's getting ahead of it. (laughs) Yeah, getting in front of it, kind of just saying, hey, this isn't, you know, I've made my decision. I'm turning pro. I guess she can always dial it back. But, you know, she's projected as the WNBA's number one pick. And, you know, the Indiana Fever right there in the uh, Midwest could make her the face of the franchise. Now, the Big Ten told me today their conference tournament in women's basketball is sold out. Wow. First time that has ever happened. I believe it. It's Caitlin Clark. Well, you saw the lines for her games. Yeah, I mean, she's she is the face of of basketball college basketball i didn't say men's or women's she's the biggest face in college basketball it's great for the women's game i'm kind of hoping because of the way they do the regionals for the women's ncaa tournament i said this before you know there's one regional in portland there's one regional in albany so two brackets feed into one regional so portland will get two elite eight games final four games They'll, they'll send two teams through Portland to the Final Four. Iowa was in Seattle last year. I would not be surprised if Caitlin Clark ends up playing in the Portland Regional instead of Albany. Would you send her? I'll send her west if I'm the NCAA. I won't send her to Albany. I'll send her to, to the great state of Oregon and let her play at Moda Center. So Caitlin Clark's last game as a college player, if she doesn't get to the Final Four, could happen right here in Portland, Oregon. Hmm. Number three. Also on Instagram, Shohei Otani just casually mentioning, oh, by the way, I'm married. <laughs> he announced this late Wednesday night. Uh, he says it's someone from his native country of Japan who is very special to him. He did not reveal the person's name. I am excited for what is to come, he said. Thank you for your support. A bunch uh, of Dodger fan dudes are upset now. Why? Because they wanted to marry Otani because the Dodger fans are all in love with him. You know? <laughs> they thought, oh, my chances are over. <laughs> he says uh, he did reveal during a meeting with media at spring training today that they two knew each other for around three or four years before tying the knot. So I, of course, went to, you know, Google. To figure out who he's married Did to. Did you figure it out? I don't know. You got any suspects? No, but the leading rumor is that it's um, 
a volleyball phenom, Maiko Kano, Maiko Kano, former Japanese volleyball player who reportedly crossed paths with him back in 2018. So there have been Googling. hints of a romantic connection between Otani and Kano in social media posts. Okay. All rumor. All rumor. She's six one. Yeah. Okay. He's she's tall. She's tall. He was also rumored to have dated a Hawaiian softball player, Kamalani Dung. Okay. But uh I my vote is that it's gonna be somebody understated. You, you know, think? isn't uh Kano a little bit too old for him? You know, she's uh <laughs> What does that mean? I'm just saying. How old is Shohei Otani? I don't know. Let's Get one of our researchers on this quickly. Yeah. Okay. Shohei Otani is uh-huh. 29. Okay. 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 She, uh, that uh, Mike Okano, she yeah. is, uh, well, she's, okay, she'd be in there. She'd be right <laughs> in there. Okay, never mind. <laughs> she's 35. <laughs> A little bit too old for him. She's not ancient. That's yeah, too old. Jeez. <laughs> For him. He's 29. He's a baby. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay? She's robbing the cradle, if that's the way. I think they're friends. I think it's going to be a surprise. Well, what I think is funny is how is he keeping such a low profile on all of this? If he's living in L.A. and playing for the Dodgers and there's paparazzi all around, like, how long can he keep who his wife is a secret? I would like for this to be a game throughout the season. And then week by week of the season, they eliminate one prospect off the Dodgers Jumbotron screen in center field. No, it's not the volleyball player. No, it's not some pop singer. No, it just turns out it's somebody he's known since the third grade. No, he said that he's known this person for three or four years. That's what he said today. All right. Well, that's be... all. He, there was no follow-up question. Like, what's her name? <laughs> no, he's not revealing. Does she live in L.A.? Was this why he signed with the Dodgers? No, he did say that's not why he signed with the Dodgers. He clarified that. I'm gonna have to learn how to read Japanese. <laughs> Figure this out in the tabloids over there. <laughs> Moving on to, uh, are we on three or three. four? Three. We're on three. Okay, I knew that. Number three. Devin Booker and Drew Holiday are joining Team USA for the 2024 Olympics in Paris. I'm telling you, this team is excited to go over to the City of Lights and play, okay? So it's going to be LeBron, Steph Curry. Just found out that Paris is the City of Lights. Kevin Durant, Joel Embiid, and Jason Tatum. That's a good team. I, I like the balance of that team because you've got some guys like Drew Holiday and Devin Booker who were added that I think will understand their roles on this team. And I think LeBron aging, Steph Curry aging, an older, wiser Kevin Durant, <laughs> Joel Embiid. Are we claiming Joel Embiid now, Stephen? Yeah, why he not? Wants, yeah. He wants to be a winner. He does. Yeah, if he wants to be American, come be American and win uh, yeah. USA some gold. Let's do it. Because he, he has French citizenship. What is he doing? He's going to get booed. He's going over there, and he's going, you know what? I had a choice. Thank you very much. I'd like to win a gold medal, France. Not playing with, you know, but MB. Like, this is a really good team. He's playing also the field. Being dis- also being discussed, Anthony Edwards and Tyrese Halliburton. You like those additions? You notice how they're not going like star, star players. They're making this a nice, balanced roster. This roster can win. Where's Damian Lillard on this roster, Stephen? 
Um, I think he showed last Olympics that his defense wasn't up to par. <laughs> well, he's been talking about how lonely and bored he is over in the Midwest, so maybe he'll decide to join the Olympic team after all. He needs to start going to movies by himself. That would be really <laughs> the, the Lillard era in Milwaukee. Get the movie pass. Get the Regal deal. 21 bucks. You can go to mo- movies all month. Unlimited. Number four. Wait, that's four? Okay. Uh, Scotty Pippen, sticking with the NBA. You know how Scotty Pippen is down under doing this no bull tour, kind of in response to the Michael Jordan documentary. So everyone was waiting to see, like, are they going to trash Michael Jordan? Because the report was that he and some other folks, Luke Longley and Horace Grant, yeah, Horace Grant. happy about yeah. how they were portrayed in The Last Dance. Well, it turns out, guess what he said? Guess what Scottie Pippen said on the Today Show in Australia? Well, I can't wait. He was asked if he considers Jordan to be basketball's greatest of all time he didn't hesitate to answer affirmatively he said if you look at the mvps that he was able to achieve yes for sure but yeah but i think it was all brought from us being successful as a team (laughs) this whole tour is a scam obviously someone's gonna bring those accolades home but yeah he was the greatest player definitely in this tour belongs in a walmart breezeway with these guys signing 8 by 10 pictures of each other. <gasps> That's kind of mean. No, Come it on. isn't. I saw Horace Grant on the stage when they were doing the promo for this thing. Yeah. And he was saying this Michael Jordan last dance video was some bull bleep. <laughs> and he's wearing Jordans. He's wearing Michael Jordan's sneakers while trashing the idea that Michael Jordan. I think you have to do one extra one here. Number five. Oh, Okay, um, what else did we have Go to here? Jerry Jones. I, I want your take on this one. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Jerry Jones has to take a paternity test. Ordered to test. take a DNA test in a paternity case to determine whether he is, in fact, the biological woman, biological father. <gasps> Shocking <me>. revelation. <laughs> Breaking news. He's a woman. No, the biological father of a woman who sued him last year. She's 27. She said in court documents um, that, uh, I don't know, this is all very confusing. Yeah, all she, these genetic things she are was, very confusing. But he, I don't think he's t- disputing the paternity necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Because he's been paying payments to her and her mother uh-huh. for years. Yeah. And I, he's saying it's a shakedown, and he's challenging the constitutionality of being forced to take a paternity test after he signed... Uh, you know, an agreement with uh-huh. her mother. Okay. okay. But she wants to be recognized as one of his children. Uh, okay. Thank so, you. Yeah. There's. You can tell I was yeah. really prepared to talk about well, that story. The guy who, you know, the guy at the center of the story, all you need to know is the same guy who said this. Uh, I think that's a part of leadership is to have some of the guys that have gone before that uh, have been disappointed uh, to share it with everybody involved. For me, it's a reminder. I, too, have been here 23 years. And uh, it is a reminder. I've been here when it was glory hole days, and I've been here when it wasn't. And so having said that, uh, uh, I want me some glory hole. <laughs> so I have that perspective. He's looking around the room. By the way, a glory hole in the context of the offshore petroleum industry where Jerry Jones' family made their money 
is an excavation into the seafloor. Okay? <laughs> but yeah. you're permitted to... Uh, that's what he means, yeah, right? Yeah, that's what he means. That's what he means. He, he too, <laughs> wants some glory hole. I want me are- some glory hole. <laughs> These are billionaire problems, aren't they? Yeah. You know? These are billionaire problems. Well, I always think it's problematic when these, you know, these guys who have become billionaires as business people. <laughs> yeah. And Jerry Jones has a net worth of $13.5 billion. Uh-huh. What's the problem? And he, well, he went into, he first got into fast food franchising, uh-huh. and then he got into wildcatting. Oil wildcatting. What's okay? Where he had good luck. Mm. He struck oil in twelve of his first thirteen wells, mm-hmm. and then in that business, that's where he made his money, and that's where. He, by the way, he doesn't own a hundred percent of the Cowboys. Hmm. He owns fifty-one percent. Oh. Did you know that? Well, he owns enough. He owns enough. Majority stakeholder. And his children hold the other forty-nine percent. So he has made them shareholders. Wait, so the, the woman was twenty-seven years old. Is that what you said? earlier that's the daughter the daughter, the daughter is oh, that's the, the daughter. daughter okay so yeah. she sounds he, about right for show height, he was in his 50s when he allegedly and probably fathered this child <laughs> okay <laughs> sounds awful and then <laughs> what do you mean awful. what do you mean Steven? Steve is thinking about raising kids in his oh. 50s <laughs> Jerry Jones trust me Jerry Jones has had no interest in raising children here <laughs> he's not waking up at midnight you're saying no <laughs> He's paid $375,000 to this woman's mother for the, uh, I guess, the right to be able to not be a dad. That's the, kind of the sad thing. This, yeah. it, there's always sadness yeah, in these stories sadness. for me. sure. Because I look at it and I go, you know, there's a kid who probably would have rather, much rather just had a dad, you know, no, albeit not that guy. And then he's in this going, I can just buy my way out of this problem. And here she comes 27 years later going, eh, I, I actually want to be recognized as your daughter. Mm-hmm. Maybe she wants a piece of the Cowboys. Maybe mm. Cowboys fans should be rooting for this. Yeah. Because maybe, let's say he has to give her 2%. Mm-hmm. Now she slides over with the siblings and they go, we have 51% of the Cowboys. Get out of here, Jerry. Hmm. You know? It's like real life succession. She's a brilliant football mind, maybe. I want me some glory hope. <laughs> oh there you go. Goodness. All right, coming up, punch it audio. Leave it here. I'm going to go run my 40 now to see if I was, I'm faster now than I was at age 22. Tom Brady, is he faster now? Stephen, if you had to vote right now, Tom Brady ran a 5-2-8 at the 40 at age 22. It's a slow 40 time by combine standards. My 40 was faster than Tom Brady's 40 at that age. Um, give me an idea. You think Brady's telling the truth? I do, yeah. I think... Um... I think he's in better shape. I think technology and just like everything we know about working out and making yourself quicker and faster is there's so much more we know now than there was back then. And Brady always had um, the Guerrero guy. He was always about his, about his business, about keeping his body right. So I think, uh, I think Tom's probably in better shape now than he was back then in college. So yeah, I think he's running faster now than he was then. Man, it was a bad performance. So, you know, maybe uh, maybe he hasn't lost that much. I don't know. I, I want to believe him, but I've seen enough of his videos to know that he's really interested in looking good and looking smart, and he wouldn't have posted that video if he, had, if he was, you know, five hundredths of a second slower than the 40 time. It doesn't get any views. And so I think it makes a big splash because he's a little faster. He's a touch faster. 
Um, I won't be surprised if it comes out that it's. I'm going to say. I'm going to say it's doctored. That's that's going to be my vote right now. And I'm the guy who believed that Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey it was true love from the beginning. So you know, I come from a good place. Let's play some punch it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, Justin Herbert's got a new head coach in Jim Harbaugh. Herbert talking about that. He sounds excited. Punch it. Yeah, fired up. You know, uh, he's done such a, a great job at the NFL level, college level. He's, he's had success wherever he goes. And, you know, he's a competitor. He wants to win. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to play for him. Yeah, just talking about the offense, his vision for what the team looks like, offense, defense. Um, you know, I, I know this is their busy time where they're dealing with the combine, putting in the offense, kind of getting together their entire staff. So, um, you know, from the, the times that I have talked to him, he, he seems like a competitor. He just wants to win. Um, and that's definitely a guy you want to play for. Justin Herbert's stats from last season, not his best season. I mean, when you go back and you look, he uh, you know he threw for 3,134 y- yards. He battled some injuries, completed about 65% of his passes. It was, a, it was a career low in the NFL for completion percentage, yards, average per catch, touchdowns. Uh, he only had seven interceptions. But um, when I look at Herbert, I think that, the arrival of Jim Harbaugh with the Chargers benefits him more than anybody. This was made for him, and in fact, I think Jim Harbaugh probably took this job because he knew he had a guy at quarterback that he could lean into. The Chargers will not have to draft a quarterback. They can focus on other positions. Herbert has all the tools that Jim Harbaugh needs for him to be successful. I'm really excited to see what happens with the Chargers in the next two years. Jim Harbaugh, uh, is been walking around saying he's relentless and Herbert's relentless and two relentless guys in the same room. He's spinning all that. But I, for me, it's more about Harbaugh's proof of performance and Herbert's talent. And I, I'm excited to see those things married. And in a lot of ways, I think Justin Herbert is getting the best head coach on any level that he has had. Apologies to Mark Helfrich and Willie Taggart and Mario Cristobal. It, it, this is... Way better than anything he had in college. This is better than anything he's had in the pros. This is a home run for Justin Herbert. Dan Campbell, Lions coach, second-guessing even weeks after the Super Bowl and more than a month after the NFC Championship game. Would he have Would he have played that last series differently against San Francisco in the NFC title game? Punch it. No, I, I mean, I, I would say, look, you're always going to, like for me, I'm always going to, look back and reflect on every game that happens and particularly the losses my job is to if i can alleviate pressure where do i do that where do i give our team the best chance to win the only thing that if i could go back that i felt greedy on was at the very end of the game and instead of just deciding what we're going to do on fourth down uh to hold the timeout, you can run it you're you know you do it on third down and and i should have waited till fourth you know we watch coaches evolve all the time. Dan Campbell's he, he, he's evolving. He's got good players. The Lions will be back next season in the NFC. He'll learn from it. I'm glad he's talking about it. It says a lot about him. Mike Florio talking about Marvin Harrison Jr. at the Combine. Could he make a power play? Yes, he could. Here's Florio. Punch it. 
Marvin Harrison not working out. Yeah, right. Marvin Harrison doesn't have an age. That's been obscured. Him and whole Caleb Williams. Caleb right Williams now, right? thing. And we've been waiting for Caleb Williams to make a power play. He, everything he said indicates there will be no power play from Caleb Williams. Do we know there won't be a power play from Marvin Harrison? Do we know that he'll say yes to whoever drafts him? That he won't work behind the scenes to make it? He, he has a father in place to be the one who takes the, the heat like Archie Manning did. 20 years ago for Eli. Yeah. If he even cares about that. Yeah. Could he be a guy who says, I got my NIL money in the bank. I'm not going to play for you. I'll sit out for a year. He could be that guy. Would he be that guy, though? I think most, for the most part, players at the top of the draft, they can say what they want, they can posture all they want. Maybe, like we've seen in the college game, we're watching a generation of athletes that bucked the system. Maybe they're ready to try to do that in the NFL, but I think he'd be hard-pressed to take on the NFL's collective bargaining agreement. There's been some talk about Caleb Williams. Could he circumvent the CBA uh, on a, and try to not have a rookie deal? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if Harrison's willing to sit a year. That is a big risk. The only question I have is, is now that there's a lot of NIL money, like a lot of these players have, have made money in college, the only reason you wouldn't sit out or you wouldn't like hardball him is because you're you're wasting one year to that second contract that's where you get your real money right so does it have any effect now that players are getting more money in college that they're willing to sit out a year and take away from getting to that second contract because that's what i mean that's where you make all your money john it's not that first contract you know if he has a big big couple first years he's gonna be making you know 30 million dollars a year so can he wait that one year out just try to get to where he wants to be yeah maybe and there you know it's interesting that neither he nor Caleb Williams have hired an agent. They're using managers, they're getting advice, but they're not willing to give up 5% of that contract to somebody just to negotiate the deal that is a, you know, it's not really a deal. It's you're slotted into a certain level of pay with a rookie contract. Mariners in spring training and Cole Young at the plate. That's their big shortstop prospect, Punch it. And leading things off, Cole Young with a swing and a drive deep to right field. Holy smokes, he leaned into this one, and goodbye baseball. Cole Young with a leadoff home run here in the bottom of the fifth inning. What a shot by Young. Just turned 21 years of age only a few days ago. Mariners' first-round pick a couple of years ago. Been a lot of talk about pitching in the Mariners in this spring training. Nice to see some hitting. And from a prospect who was... You know, voted the number 37 prospect in baseball overall by MLB Pipeline. Uh, this is a guy who could move through the system very quickly. We talked on, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday, with Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times, who said he would not be surprised to see this guy uh, get to the big leagues sooner rather than later. Um, Cole Young with the Mariners showing a little bit of his power. He had a, he had a double on Monday, uh, had, a, had a home run today. James Woods of the Nationals, crack of the bat, punch it. Might not realize it, but he can run as he lifts this one high in the air to center. Back to the wall, and that ball is over the wall, and that's a home run. A round tripper for Wood, and the Nationals are up 2 to nothing. I love the sound of spring training. This is the top prospect 
for the Nationals. And the guy leading spring training in home runs. He's tied for the lead. Six foot six, rated the number 14 prospect. Wood hit his third home run of the spring, taking Kyle Gibson yard, and uh, has been a big part. Seven for 14 this spring, three home runs, six runs scored, 17 plate appearances. He's been very good. Giant left-handed hitter who uh, let that one say How is it in baseball for spring train like – Every year, like, every fan base feels the hope, right? Like, they see a prospect right. do well. Like, in the NFL, in the preseason, you know there's going to be some bad teams. Like, Arizona last season. Or in the NBA, like, in the preseason, we knew the Blazers would be bad. Like, why is it in baseball, John, every team can get excited about some young player? Like, you know what? Maybe this is our year. Maybe it's spring, you know, just the spring's in the air. Maybe this is the year for our team. What, what is I think, that? I think you're hitting on part of it. I think the idea that the spring sort of brings blooms and hope and the sun comes out again hope springs eternal but why is it that we associate hope with baseball well part of it is that the best teams in baseball still lose 60 games a year 65 games a year right i mean it's the best teams in baseball go 100 and and lose 62 or win 102 and lose you know 61 and or 60 so it's you know in baseball, it's not like the dominant teams go undefeated. And so you, you see over time, you start to believe, like, you know, there is a path here to win this game. And you've heard football coaches talk about this. I saw Mike Shanahan, the former Broncos coach, quoted recently as saying, there's a way to win every football game. I think in baseball, more so than any other sport, the best team doesn't always win. You get a great pitching performance. You get a great hitting performance. The ball bounces a certain way. Yes, over time, the better teams emerge in baseball and end up winning more a higher percentage of their games. But I think everybody has hope because it's not a total loss for your team if you're not good. You know, bad teams in baseball still win 60 games in a season, right? And so I think, you know, there's a, there's a smaller variance between the elite MLB champions and the bottom dwellers in the basement than in, in baseball than in any other sport. So you only see like 40 games difference between the best team and the worst team in a 162-game schedule. And so I do think it gives you kind of a hope coming out of the season or coming out of the spring training that you know your team can matter, your team can compete. Even though we look at the payrolls and you see the Mets uh, up at the top and you see the A's down at the bottom and you see like, $180 million in difference in what they're going to spend in payroll, um, you still leave the spring going, you know what? We got a chance. Finally, Ducks quarterback Kyrie Jackson. He faced Roma Dunze three times this season. He's kind of an expert, but he says it wasn't the best receiver he faced all year. He says Troy Franklin, his teammate at Oregon, holds that distinction. Punch it. Was Rome the best? Uh, doing that? Was he the best receiver you faced? No, uh, the best receiver I faced was Troy Franklin. Every day in practice. Now, is this a teammate just saying a nice thing about another teammate? Possibly. Is it just a rivalry thing? Could be. Could also be that he's friends with Troy Franklin and respects and admires him and wants to help him out. I think Troy Franklin is a tremendous talent. I, but I think Roma Dunze 
spoke for himself. I mean, we knew he was getting the ball. We knew Michael Penix was going to him. And in the end, you uh, you couldn't do anything about it. You think Troy Franklin uh, could maybe sneak into the first round? I know there's been some mocks, like the Chiefs have thought about him at the Ooh, end of the first round. Good. Oh, he'd be so good there. You think he can sneak <laughs> in? Because, I mean, he's a talented talented dude. Yeah, he'd, he'd be – I'll tell you, the two, both Super Bowl teams would love to have him. I think that if the Niners took Troy Franklin somewhere in the draft, it would they wouldn't have to re-sign you know, Brandon Ayuk. It, and if you put Trey Franklin with Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey in that offense, um, he's going to be a good starter on that team. He'll he'll start in the NFL. He'll be a good player. He is uh, a guy that uh, can hurt you. I've had, and, the, I've had this debate with people. Sorry about that. But I've had a debate yeah. with people, Troy Franklin. Is he the best receiver in Ducks history? Because I think Ooh. he is. I was, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, best receivers in Oregon history. And, again, it's not, you know, it's not like an illustrious group. Right. That, I mean. All time. There's some really um, good ones, but I feel like you look at the numbers, you look at the production, you look at just the way he looks on the field, how he may be a first-round pick. Like, yeah. I don't know that I can go anybody else. I love Braylon Addison's game. Um, I think about guys like Keenan Howery, Demetrius Williams. Sammy Parker. Sammy Parker, great player. Jeff Mayle was a great talent who got everything out of what he could athletically. But I I put Trey, like Franklin's in that conversation with Sammy Parker and Keenan Howery. I think he's right in there. And if you if you said to me I can only have one of those guys, I'm taking either Sammy Parker or Trey Franklin. Top yeah, top six. He's sixth all time in Ducks for the Ducks history and receptions, Jeff Mayle, number one, ja- Jason Williams, uh, number yep. two, Sammy Parker, Demetrius Williams, Keenan Howery, then Troy Franklin. You want to go a little farther down, Tony Hartley, Christian McElmore, Braylon Addison, Josh Huff. So, I mean, yeah. I mean he's but right if there. You, like, if you could give me an offense, I would take a guy like Braylon Addison because he's different, and I would take Troy Franklin and uh, either Demetrius Williams or Sammy Parker. Now, Troy Franklin still had one more year of eligibility and, and yeah. uh, has the most career touchdowns in Ducks history, too. So there you go. And, and then other people would say, hey, don't forget Darren Carrington. DeAnthony Thomas. Dylan Mitchell was good. Really good. But the problem Oregon's had is, like, they went through an era where they were really good at football, but not necessarily good at recruiting top receivers. Um. If it no doubt, if if Troy Franklin came back for another year, he's the all-time leading receiver at Oregon in in history. So is he the best? Yeah, I'll I'll put it. Franklin, Sammy Parker, Demetrius Williams. You're not going wrong with any of those guys. I want you to leave it here. Coming up, we'll put a capper on the Pac-12 news today. I asked a question of Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president. I asked him, "How do you separate yourselves?" If you are Washington State and Oregon State, how do you separate yourselves from the Mountain West Conference teams and the WCC teams that you're playing against? How do you create a division between church and state without disrespecting them? You don't want to be like them. You'll hear his answer next. I really feel like all of this seismic change, while it is unpredictable, I I think it's to our advantage. Like, I, I really believe that, that where we're going to be in a month or a year or 18 months is going to look different than where we are today. 
like certainly what happened on August 4th, nobody would have anticipated. But I don't think that's the only domino to fall. I think there are going to be others as a result of either what's happening at the CFP level, what's happening with litigation, what's happening at the NCAA. And I think my job in partnering with the two athletic directors and the two presidents is to make sure that we're attacking all of this change and not only protecting the interests of OSU and WSU, but thinking through strategically how to capitalize on any change that might be coming down the pike, but then also to be influencers in that change, right? We can't just sit back and passively wait for the change to happen. We have to utilize our governance seats, utilize the influence that we do have to influence the change um, to our benefit. Now, I like a couple things about that clip. One, she's spinning a possible negative into a positive. Second one is she uses the phrase coming down the pike. A lot of people say coming down the pipe. She's right. Um, Coming down the pipe is a modified version of the phrase. But from an English lit major, I appreciated that she used pike. Um, and I know I'm geeking out on that, but I, I also think like the overall tenor of it is they want to be opportunistic. I don't know if Oregon State, Washington State will be able to be opportunistic, but they want to be opportunistic. And being opportunistic starts with the mindset of saying, hey, we're looking for opportunities. So I like that she said that. Uh, that was on our one-on-one interview that happened today on the show at 4 o'clock. We talked for about 20, 25 minutes. And if you want to grab the podcast of that, you can do that wherever you get a podcast soundcloud apple podcast if you get podcasts on your phone just search for the bald face truth and you can subscribe to the podcast and listen to that interview with Teresa gold the new commissioner of the pac-12 conference george kopkov's last day on the job today tomorrow it is Teresa gold's baby um i was on the conference call earlier today kurt schultz the president at washington state on the call Teresa gold there and um I was listening, and I got a chance to ask a question. And so I did ask the Washington State president and the commissioner a question about how the two schools that are remaining, Oregon State and Washington State, you know, they're going to play a Mountain West Conference schedule. They're going to play WCC teams and other sports. But the question for me is, like, I think it's an important thing that, you, you know, if you're Oregon State and Washington State, you want to distance yourself from – kind of the the world of the Mountain West, the world of the WCC, you need to create some separation there because you don't want the, the public to view you as a Mountain West team. Because if you, if you don't make a distinction, then you are them. You're in the same soup, so you are them. Kirk Schultz answered the question. This is a, a fine balance, and... I'm very deeply appreciative of the Mountain West and the West Coast Conference for partnering with us in Oregon State for different sports. So, you know, I, I want to look at it and say, if, if the positions were reversed, how would I want to be treated and so forth? What I would not want is to bring somebody in who quickly, the first thing they're talking about is leaving and what they can extract or get out of a particular relationship or situation. I just think that's not a good way to work. On the other hand, both those conferences know that we've got a, a multi-year window here where there's got to be some uh, final landing spot for those two schools. 
And so I just think we got to keep communications open back and forth. We got to make sure that we don't sort of be, you know, come strutting in there thinking we're just better than everybody else because of where we were before. We'll wind up getting our ass kicked as if that happens. Um, but I do think it's really important for us to keep that partnership there, uh, keep the communications open. And, you know, we're counting on Teresa to work with her uh, commissioner colleagues in those two conferences as well on what future partnerships could look like. Uh, so I just think you'll see us being careful with language. Uh, we want to be uh, uh, respectful uh, to our new uh, conference partners. Uh, and we've got to keep our eyes on the horizon on what's best for our two institutions. All right. He said it. Eyes on the horizon. I'm going to raise something that nobody's talking about that you need to keep an eye on. June 30th is a big date. The 10 departing schools are going to wave goodbye to the Pac-12 and they're going to leave. They're going to go off to the Big Ten, off to the Big 12. It'll be a big summer, right? Oregon and Washington, USC, UCLA going to the Big Ten. They'll be part of Big 12 or Big Ten Media Day in, in July. Uh, the Big 12 teams... Uh, or the two Arizona schools in Colorado and Utah will go off to the Big 12, be part of their football media day. They're all going to be moving forward. But it's, if, if you're looking at the horizon, that June 30th date is interesting because if the Pac-12 wanted to do something groundbreaking on June the 30th, it could attempt the coup that everybody has long thought about, but not really known when it is going to happen. And the coup would be, if nothing else is happening, if there isn't going to be a big round of realignment and chaos, if there's not going to be a restructuring of the college ecosystem, Oregon State and Washington State and the Pac-2 could make their move on San Diego State, Boise State, Fresno State, Colorado State, UNLV and Air Force, and they could do it on June the 30th, and that would be the last date that those schools, those prospective schools, could buy their way out of the Mountain West and only pay $17 million as an exit fee. Now, the Pac-12 would be on the hook for a penalty. Those penalties, uh, you know, they, they escalate. They become a thing. Um, it's not, not cheap, but well within the $255 million that the uh, Pac-12 has got in that war chest. So keep an eye on June 30th, because on July 1... Those Mountain West Conference buyouts go up. It would be part of a new media deal. It would be part of a, uh, uh, a new contract moving forward. There's gonna, it would start to escalate. So I'm being told, not by Oregon State and Washington State, but by others around the country who are watching what's going to happen, they're saying, gosh, I wonder if San Diego State, Boise State, and the others, I wonder if that's when they would think about it. I'm not saying it's going to happen. But I'm just saying, keep an eye on that June 30th date, because all the rest of us are going to be going, gosh, the Pac-12 as we know it is gone. We'll be lamenting the nostalgia and the history and saying goodbye. And and then, but it might be, might conceivably be a time for Oregon State, Washington State to look to add members to the conference. Just keep an eye on it. Now, Stephen, before the break, I'm kicking myself. We were talking about greatest wide receiver in Oregon history. And we were talking about whether Troy Franklin or uh, Keenan Howery or, you know, others could be in that conversation. We missed one. Do you know who we missed? Uh, Ahmad Rashad. Ahmad Rashad. Although he was 
technically a running back on the roster. Bobby Moore, might he might be the greatest wide receiver. Is he not the greatest wide receiver in Oregon history? Like, yeah, he had the best best pro career. Yeah, that's probably the right answer, right? Like, the, you know, I, I totally blanked on it, too, and then you said that, I thought, yes. oh, yeah, Avada Shad, forgot him. Mark in Portland sent me an email just with the subject line, Bobby Moore, get serious. <laughs> so thank you, Mark, for that. I appreciate that. All right, uh, make sure you grab a podcast of the show. We're back tomorrow. We'll have big guests next week. We'll have some broadcast from Vegas late in the week as I'll be on the scene for the Women's Pac-12 tournament late in the week. Uh, two weeks from now, I'll be there again for the Men's Pac-12 tournament. Also going to take in a little bit of the WCC or the Mountain West tournaments. The Vegas is like a mecca for college basketball in the next couple weeks. So uh, the bald-faced truth in the meantime, not here for a long time, you know, just a good time. And we'll be back tomorrow. Another great show. Thank you, Stephen, Judah, and everybody else. Line of interns who all production assistants who all do a great job helping uh, make this show what it is.